Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. Vegetius. Calm before the storm. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark. And I'm Thumbs. And we are here for episode six, Return of the Thumbs, because, you know, he was he was elsewhere on Hoth or, or something like that last time. <laughs> but uh, he's got a clean bill of health and he's he's got a smiling face and it's good to have him back. I was wondering why you were asking about Return of the Jedi right before we started recording. I just know that we have a, a you know some nerds in the audience, understandably a few nerds, and I wanted to make sure that I got the episode correct. I didn't no, want to be perfect. like, yes, it's... episode 19, Return of the Sandwalker, or something I'd like watch that. that. I don't know. I'd watch that. The Sandwalker episode's one of my favorite of Mandalorian, but that's for my other podcast. Yeah, see, I, I didn't actually intend for that to... <laughs> nope, that's <laughs> to me. That's on me. But uh, we got our thumbs back, and we're very pleased about that. And we got a, uh, an excellent episode in store for you today. Uh, but first, the much-awaited lightsabers of Casa du Malark have arrived. And we are quite pleased with this fact. Yes, we're quite pleased. We've got our, our eight lightsabers. Nine, if you, if my, because my, my wife's is a, two, a two-sided a two one, so it's got a coupler in the middle. But if you take that coupler off, then she's got, you know, two identical purple lightsabers, which are pretty sick. And so uh, we've got our nine lightsabers. It's it's a little excessive, we admit, for now. It's excessive right now while we're confined to quarantine. But once once everybody's better and we're able to do more stuff, we got a healthy little starter kit for for folks who want to come over and spar. You uh, you sent me a picture of the lightsabers, and my immediate response was, "Man, I need to go get mine." And then I'd be like, "Wait, no, I am forty five minutes away, like thirty miles away. It's December." And there's a plague going on. I do not immediately need to start, like, trying to attack Malark with lightsabers. Yeah, no, I, I definitely had to re- resist that impulse as well. My first impulse was to be like, all right, I got to get on the horn with Thumbs and TF and Kaji, and we got to go out and whack each other with some lightsabers, because, like, I've been waiting to do this for, for a while now. And I was like, wait a second. We have been smart right up until this point, and we need We're to continue being good. smart. Yeah. <laughs> Need to keep up the smartness, and then when it's all over, we can smartly whack each other with, uh, with, uh, I, what is that? It's like a riot shield material. I don't know exactly what it was, what it's called. It's smarts. Something, something hard plastic. It's cool. I know, I know that it's smarts. I was whacking myself with a lightsaber earlier today just to, like, when, when we do weapons tests in Belagarth, of course, we're checking to make sure that the weapon is safe, that you can't feel core. Um, this weapon is all core. There's no foam on these lightsabers. So I'm just <laughs> whacking myself with this, with this softer baton, basically, mostly just to check. I, I wanted to make sure that I didn't have to have 
total armor coverage. I wanted to be like, okay, if somebody really cranks on me, which I'm cranking on myself right now, if somebody really cranks on me, is it going to do damage? And it, I mean, it hurt. I, I mean, I had welts afterwards, but as, I mean, obviously gloves every single times because like, you know, the smaller joints, the wrist and the, and the, you know, the metacarpals and that sort of thing, those are very important and are much more fragile than say a fibia, a tibia or a femur. But I still am probably going to wear armor just to take off the majority of the sting because while it, you know, it's not a breaking or a, or a killing sort of impact, it hurt <laughs> for sure. Uh, for my birthday this year, we went out camping and the lightsabers had arrived like three days before. So, of course, we took them with us. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Also, they're just great for camping because here's a big, easy light. Mm-hmm. That looks that makes you feel awesome as you walk through the woods. Um, but so of course we started fighting with them too, and uh, she got into it. And when my wife swings, she swings. Well, we, we've talked about before. She's a she's a rural Montana girl. She's grown up on a farm and she's hunted and fished and camped her into a li- whole life. If she's gonna hit you, she's gonna hit you. Is really what it comes yeah. down to. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so she got excited and. Yeah, I I definitely felt it the next day. <laughs> yeah, the welts are gone now. I mean, that just I think that's more to say with my my healthy potassium level than anything else. But uh, yeah, it, I mean, they smarted. I was hoping they'd stick around until my wife got home so I could show her. But I think I I, I get this this cupping thing done at my my masseuse, and so I think I probably get it done often enough that my skin just is used to any sort of bruising and just reabsorbs stuff at this point. It's like I. Ah, we can't be here forever because then we would never get anything done. I have noticed since the pandemic started that I've been getting less visible bruises because I'm not getting whacked by fiberglass and foam every week like I have been for the previous 15 years. It's like your dermis isn't being damaged weekly. It's interesting, (laughs) right? Not that we have anything against dermis damage on a weekly basis. I would love to go back to weekly dermis damage. No, yeah. clearly we're in favor. Uh, but there, are, there are perks. <laughs> That's the new name for Wacky Bats, weekly dermis damage. <laughs> weekly dermis damage. Here you go. Between the sun and the impact, we will give you a carcinoma by the time you're 45. <laughs> or your money back. And you, you've been keeping busy too, though. Like you've got, some, you've got some good stuff you've been working on, some helms and whatnot. Yeah, um, the the day after we record this, we are starting our yearly Gelfmas party, which is what the local members of my unit, the of my realm, throw a party for people every year. And we always give away a bunch of gear. Um, and I am also using this as our excuse to give presents to other members of the unit and I have been making a bunch of helms for people. Now to clarify this Gelfmas party is, is going to be an online event, right? Yes, it is an entirely online one this year. Uh, it will hopefully have been a roaring success by the time this comes out, but no. we Usually we do it an in-person uh, yearly holiday party for the realm, but since we couldn't do that this year, and I couldn't do the like, we I usually would give away like super cheap gifts for everyone like oh i've got like 30 of these but you know they cost three dollars each instead i made like four things that cost like honestly i already had all the gear so just time but uh, that was significantly more effort um and i am also making a bunch of stuff for in in the same lines the same stuff for a bunch of gelf 
because I have slowly the, been trying to armor up the unit, which gives me an excuse to make stuff as practice and makes them more effective against arrows. Yeah, which is, which are all good things. I've I've loved the fully armored units that I've seen. They're very effective when everybody's out there. It just gives you that that extra little bit. Helms especially because they can't be destroyed in the in the sport of Belagarth. They are a very prized thing on the field, especially a good helm. And they're face protectors. You and I were talking about this before we started recording. I am definitely leaping onto your uh, your worldview of I should always be wearing a helm when I'm on the field. Yep. Yep, the brain meats are just too... And even though we're not supposed to hit each other in the head, like the brain meat is just too sensitive and too important to overall survival to really risk it. I mean, you're still taking a decent knock if you take like, uh, you know, a, a core shot or a shaft shot from like a spear to the to the head, but it hurts way less than to take it on your skin and skull. Less dermis damage, just to bring it yeah. over. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, homes are good. Spread the love. Other fun thing that kind of fits along with spreading love. The the fad is probably over by the time this episode comes back, but who knows? Hopefully this will bring another resurgence. Uh, we wanted to comment on Belagarth has been going through a Hero Forge obsession. It has. Over, it's been charming. Over the time, uh, at, around the time that we're recording this. It's just, if you don't know, I also just wanted to mention it because I really like Hero Forge as a company. Um, they are a uh, website where you go online and you can design your own miniature, you know, like 40k miniature, no, I mean, not actually 40k, but like same style as 40k or D&D or whatever. And people have just been making miniatures of themselves. And I don't think any of us have bought them yet. We've just been playing around with the surprisingly robust creation system. And then taking pictures and posting them on Facebook for everybody to, to kind of see. It's It's been... A whole lot of fun and a really fun and a neat bonding experience for the community while we're not able to, like, actually see each other in person. Well, and as someone who just recently joined the board of directors of Belagarth, let me tell you, the upper echelon, the main thing we're talking about right now is, like, how do we keep people engaged when we can't go hit each other? Yeah. Uh, and this has been the most successful engagement that I have possibly seen. Like, people spent hours practicing for something and got a third the attention that, oh, look what I made on Hero Forge has, like, taken over the world. Right. Yeah, it's 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 been interesting. Of course, it was one of those things that was spontaneous. I don't think anybody planned it. Nobody was like, all right, this is going to be the the next big thing for the Belagarth community to kind of do collectively. But uh, it just kind of worked out that way. You know, one person did it and then, you know, three other people were like, that's neat. And and then, you know, exponentially just spread out from there like a gorgeous, nerdy fractal. Well, and people are making not just themselves, but them friends. So you get to see how your friends see you, which is awesome, too. I just, cool the whole experience. thing is nice. The whole thing is yeah. good. Yeah, I agree. <clears throat> it's been a it's been a neat thing, especially on a on a year where Facebook has been a largely unpleasant place to be. It's It's always nice to... Have some positivity for everybody. I love it. And as for me, the the only other thing I've been doing, apart from uh, playing with my new lightsabers and getting ready to do that video that I have been promising y'all for about a year now, is uh, I've been conducting some assassins tourney interviews. So one of the things that we do at Belagarth tournaments, and I'm, I'm pretty sure they do them at Dag tournaments too. In fact, I'm positive they do them at Dag tournaments, is uh, an assassins tourney. 
And unlike a normal tournament where you go to a specific place at a specific time and fight people until there's a winner, an assassin's tournament usually takes place over the course of an entire event. And so, I mean, like, it's usually a longer event. I don't, I don't think I've ever heard of assassin's tournaments taking place at like a week or sorry, like a day long or like even a three day event. Like normally you're, you're talking at least a four, four day event to a week long event. If, if you're going to see an assassin's tournament, is that about right? Thumbs? That seems right. Uh, we don't tend to do it on the small ones or they never really work on the small ones. Yeah. I mean, it's just hard because like a, a proper assassin's tournament takes time. It takes planning. It takes finesse. There's a whole nother technique that really goes into a, trying to win. And so I've been conducting a series of interviews with winners of assassin's tournaments, um, just kind of trying to figure out the commonalities. The, the And they're all different too. The, the neat thing is what I've been seeing is that everybody kind of does it a little bit differently. Um, but a lot of the general rules a lot of the general um theory applies to it all so i'm looking for like after i get these interviews kind of completed and compiled into some useful data uh we're probably going to use them in a show uh likely in the next book uh when we're doing asymmetrical warfare because I, I think it would fit there a little bit better but yeah we're, we're going to talk a little bit about uh how to win this but but more than that more than the content i have just been really enjoying the contact with people like you don't realize how much you're missing people until you call up somebody that you kind of know for an interview and then you just spend an hour and a half like catching up and like enjoying one of those company talking like your old buddies sort of thing like there's a couple of these folks that i've called up and i've i'm not sure if we've ever really shared campfires together but we were we were good friends during these calls and i and i think it's just there's a lot of people who are kind of starved for human contact at this point so it kind of gave me an excuse to to do that you're like, I didn't know how much I missed you, but I did. And that's actually a really nice thing to learn. Uh like Juicer, for instance, like I, I love Juicer. I've always thought well of Juicer. I've always, I've always enjoyed him as a persona, as a person, as a presence in the, in the community. But I called him up for his interview and like, he had such nice things to say to me. And, and we oh, just had yeah. such a, a very pleasant conversation. Like it was, it was, it was very nice. I, I very much enjoyed my chat with him. And, and while I was expecting to enjoy the interview, I, it got a lot more positively personal than I was expecting. Yeah, that's uh, that's juicer for you. I've had similar experiences with him. Good guy. We've never mentioned yeah. him on the show before. I, I like. I think very highly of juicer. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna definitely talk him up. Like, pay attention in the next uh, in the next book for when we talk about this because I got a lot of really good information for him from him on the assassins tournaments. Well, and the people that get into the assassins tourneys, like the ones that win it. They get into it. And you know, it's, it kind of goes back and forth. I've seen a little bit of both. Like, I mean, there's definitely the, the, the folks like Senzo. And again, we'll talk about this. Like Senzo uh, went deep the years that he was winning the Assassin's Tournaments. Um, but he's got some background that definitely makes sense for that. And then Nee, like you remember Nee? Yeah. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't been able to find him. I think he's overseas. He's currently serving right now. Um, but he was, I think he dedicated 100% of one chaos wars to the assassins tournament. I don't recall seeing him on the field at all that year. I just recall seeing him jump out of bushes at people and then disappear as quickly. Like he was into it. The year sleuth one, she just like disappeared. We saw her every once in a while. And then like, she showed up at the end of the event and was like, that was awesome. I won. <laughs> yeah. She's another one. I, she's not on my list. I definitely need to, to get some information from her too. Definitely hit her up. She's, uh, She's run them before too. Yeah. So. 
yeah, so uh, yeah, look forward to that. That's something we're going to talk about in our asymmetrical warfare section during our, our next book, The Management of Savagery, which we're actually coming up on here pretty quick within the, where we've only got like three or four more episodes of, uh, of Vegetius left. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then our fiction focus, but that's for a later episode. Yeah, for sure. I, you know, I think we've, uh, we've chewed the fat quite long enough. What about you, Thumbs? I think it's time for some meat and potatoes. All right. It doesn't and actually work our... with you, the fat, but either way. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for our first helping, for our first serving. Darn it, I'm not good at these food analogies either. <laughs> no, we're done. Battlefield we're done. intelligence. We're talking about battlefield intelligence, y'all. So in the book, Vegetius talks in this section a little more about actual camping position, you know, in camping. Uh, but we're going to kind of place it all towards battlefield position as opposed to specifically where to stick your tent. Because, let's be honest, we've had several episodes on where to stick your tent so far, and there's only so many times we have something new to say about that. And we will likely have more episodes on that subject in uh, in seasons to come so we don't necessarily want to belabor the point to absolute death right now and of, and, and there's other and there's, there was another direction we could take this so we we figured we would so there's a couple analogies we're going to be making in this section like thumb said um yeah I, we think that it adds more because you know at the time that things are happening like you don't necessarily have to worry about camp security um in most in most places like i know that there are some events that you can go to where there's like night raids and that sort of thing and you have to build up walls around your camp and 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 things along those nature but uh most places you go there's not going to be walls you kind of wander from campfire to campfire seeking out the folks you want to seek out yeah it's uh so yeah we 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 chose to take this as like what's occurring on the battlefield yeah mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, this, this first section of battlefield intelligence, like Thumb said, uh, rules for encamping an army. Um, so when you're positioning yourself on the field, we've talked before about like areas to kind of avoid and areas to go towards. But one of the things that we really want to stress, particularly right here, is that you want to stay together. Uh, there's, there's a tendency for folks to get really spread out. You'll get gaps developing in your lines sometimes or, or large clumps that are developing in other areas. And, and this is not a good thing because it creates weaknesses and it makes it so that you cannot maneuver as effectively as a group. So one of the things that we definitely want to stress is this idea of not getting strung out. You definitely want to stay together as a group. I think where it comes from is you get the idea of like, I need to defend this entire side but if you don't have enough people for it, it's not worth it. Just guard your corner can be just as effective as long as you're making sure you were, you know, properly spaced. To quote Sun Tzu, if you defend everywhere, you are weak everywhere. Oh, man, that's a nice flashback. Um, yeah, occasionally I like to do that. At, at the same measure, be careful about going. This is going to come up a lot, I think, in just this chapter. Be fair, careful about going too far the other direction. Yeah. And if you are standing too close to each other, you can't maneuver still. Like, you, you're just getting in each other's way. Uh, when we were talking about this, you know, prepping for this episode, the, the place where this came up most specifically was if you are a shieldman guarding a spear, a red, an archer, whatever, uh, you don't need to be right on them. 
You need right. to be close enough that you can guard, but you kind of want to be like two or three steps ahead and a step to the side, as opposed to right up there. Remember a few episodes ago when we spoke about the Battle of Adrianople, one of the issues that the Romans ran into is that they got too crowded up on one another and weren't actually able to use their weapons. And the 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 Goths were able to just kind of hack into them um, and and... Yeah, the battle very much went in their way. So in this same way, you want to be conscious of of where you are in response to the other people. It doesn't do your, uh, the, the large, the, if you're helping to protect somebody who's using a spear or a claymore, it doesn't do you much good as a shieldman to be so close to them that they cannot use that weapon. Simultaneously, it's not good, you know, tracing back to what he was actually saying in the book, uh, to be so far away that you can't come in and save. So, yep. you know... Ten steps is just as bad as one step too close. Yeah. So it's it's about no, and it's this is going to be different for everybody too. Like what's going to be a, a long distance for somebody is going to be a short distance for another person based on your your gait, based on your your stride, based on how quick you are. Uh, there's going to be a couple of things, but as a, a good general rule, stay within ten feet of your teammates. Um, that's that's just a good. I don't know. Uh, just a general measurement. Don't I, I wouldn't go out there with a yardstick or with a, a ten foot tape <laughs> and make sure that you're exactly ten feet away, but roughly. You're looking for like a roughly and, and that's like if you're away from the enemy. Like when you start closing up with the enemy, you're you're gonna get a little bit closer within five feet probably of the people around you. But yeah, ten feet allows you to maneuver but also allows you to to get there if you need to. So yeah, um the next thing is when you're when you're choosing an area on the field to occupy and if you're going to choose a area that's fortified, again, this doesn't happen so much uh, in the West. We don't have a whole lot of fortifications, except for like very, very specific battle types, we might have fortifications. But I find this to be far more common on Eastern fields. But you want to avoid places that have egresses that are too narrow or too steep. Because while having a like a unassailable position is nice, you need to also understand that there are going to be things you don't expect. And as Frederick said in the last book, like it's, it's all fine and dandy to reinforce a defensive position, but you need to have a plan B. You need to have some place you can scoot to and a way to scoot there. And so one of the things Vegetius says in this book is to make sure that you can, you can do that, that you're not dealing with steep or narrow passages that are going to restrict your movement out of a place if you need to remaneuver. Uh, the same thing that's giving you advantage can become disadvantage to you just as fast. And if you're playing on defensive, you only need to make a mistake once. Well, they can usually make a mistake a couple of times. Correct. Yeah, because uh, if you're on defensive and they get inside your defensive works, that's a huge complication. That's a problem. Uh, and so, like, being able to reposition where you are defensively, um, it buys you time. It buys you time, and as like we had studied with Frederick, time is everything on the defense. So yeah, avoiding the again, and to say that you need one, at least one good way in and out. That's not to say that like you can't have like restriction to the front and be like, okay, we've got, you know, it's it's decently unassailable for the from the front. We're fairly safe there, but just be able to leave somewhere toward the side or toward the back. And this is true for for different all different types of wargaming. Don't get yourself into a position that you cannot get out of. I was just going to say, if you do find yourself in that position, you have to fight like hell. So, eh. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's definitely a different, a different thing. I think that was Sun Tzu who said, if you find yourself in a, in a backed against the wall, basically you have to fight to the death. You have to be prepared to fight to the death. Or fight like heck, as we say. <laughs> um, 
And uh, so this last part of rules of encamping an army is that you want strong positions on both sides. Remember that in the last episode, we had talked about having strong anchors, or maybe not the last episode, it was in the last couple episodes. We talked about the idea of having strong anchors on one side or another, um, whether that be the edge of the world or, or some sort of fortification, like having something that is, this is the flank. Like we, the flank doesn't go past this. We know that like, this is where it's at. This is where the fight is going to take place. It's a handy thing to have. Um, now it doesn't always guarantee everything. Remember in the, the last battle concerning Carthage that we discussed with Hasdrubal, uh, he, he had both sides anchored. The Gauls were anchored up in the, in the bluffs, uh, basically the unassailable tree area. And then the other flank was anchored against the river. So he was definitely in a good position for this. Now, he wasn't anticipating the Roman line folding on itself and, and hitting him double hard on the one side, <clears throat> but he wasn't flanked. So at least that was good. It's not a guaranteed win, but it was a good enough position that his enemy had to do something weird to beat it. Right, right. And so, it, again, it doesn't guarantee victory, but it definitely eliminates the ability of your enemy to maneuver around you and, and hit you on two different sides, because that's having a, a war on two fronts is a bad, bad, bad. I know you guys have ever played Risk, but uh, don't do it. Play Warhammer instead. <laughs> <laughs> but also try not to pick a war on two sides there if you can help it too. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this next one, this next section is on that passage of rivers and again, not literal rivers, but the, the metaphor that we've used before on the show where you're, you're moving in the dangerous areas on the field, like the, the areas that are between two units, uh, or, or two realms or, or two, you know, groups of people on the field that are enemies to you. Uh, that is what we refer to as a river. And so we've, we've discussed kind of the theory behind this some more, but you know, Vegetius gives us a little bit more advice on the subject as well. And the, the first one is kind of, uh, it kind of repeats the point from the beginning where we said, stay together, don't get strung out. It's very much true when you're, when you're moving too. You have to definitely be conscious of that because slower elements are in danger of being lost, especially if you're moving rapidly across said river. Now, sometimes you have to pick your battles on, is it worth keeping those slower elements? Right. I mean... If you can, lose as few things as possible. But with that, uh, you get to play the game of, will I lose more things protecting the slower element than the value of the slower element? Uh, right. The, the place that this comes up most for me is being legged. Mm -hmm. If I'm legged on a big field, sure, if we can, you know... Uh, form up on me or whatever and like get a good defense at this point that's great but if you guys have to bolt don't try and take the legged person with you yeah yeah that that slow is when you're when you're in the heat of the moment like that it can definitely and i know this goes against like everything i was taught in the army for instance they're like don't leave a man behind but uh, i don't know on the on the field of belagarth i'm far more likely to be like up oh, well good luck to you and then mosey on let me clarify here if I will actually real life die, then yes, you bring me along, whether I'm like or not. <laughs> but if I'm going to get die, get a drink of water, and then come back on the field five minutes later, no, you leave me to die there. I could also move much quicker in real life. Like within Belagarth and Dagger here, like you have to move relatively slowly if you quote unquote pick somebody up who's legged and, and try to move them across the field. Like it's a, it's a decently slow gait that you have to keep. Whereas, like, if I was picking you up off the field of battle and, like, you had lost a leg, 
I would be draping you across my shoulders and then just sprinting as fast as I could to the other side of the field. Like, there would be no dignity in it for you. You would not enjoy it. It would not be comfortable, but you would live. And that's the whole point. That's okay. My entire thought here is I have a good, like, 75 to 100 pounds on you. I would just fireman carry you. So dignity's not there either way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, but but in, in, a, in a fictitious game where, of course, you do have to move slower than real life when trying to, to pick up a legged person. Yeah, you want to, you want to, there, there is a payoff there, or there's a trade-off there as to is it valuable enough? Like if a good half of your team is legged and they're all kind of clumped together, then it, it makes a lot of sense to stick there with the slower elements. But if only one or two people are legged and everybody else is sprinting away, then, oh, yeah, sorry. Sorry, they're, slower elements. <laughs> we, they become road bumps. Or, yeah, road bumps at that point, right? Speed bumps. That's the word, speed bumps. So, yeah, but but in general, there's, there are a couple ways to work around this. And, oh, and one, of the ways that we had, one of the ways that we had talked about it seems kind of, um, and in particular when you're not dealing with like a, a, like a wounded fighter or, or dealing with somebody who's slow for that reason, but just elements that are slow. So in like a game of uh, 40K, if you've got Terminators that you're trying to get across the field, those would be your slower elements as compared to like bikers or that sort of thing. Um, so one of the things that I've seen great success with is actually putting your slower elements in front and then your faster elements behind them. And, and we'll, we'll kind of talk about this a little bit here in a second as well. But in doing this, you're able to kind of keep that, that spread from occurring when you're moving. Like if you have your, your people who you know are going to be a little bit slower, whether they're, they're older or whether they're just less fleet of foot or their gear is heavier or they've got a slower movement, like in the case of Terminators, having them in front and having the rest of the force kind of move either behind them or around them means that your, all of your forces are going to be hitting closer together than they would otherwise. If you put your fast things in front and then your slow things behind, chances are your fast things will hit and then you're going to have a break and then the slow things are going to hit. Which is just actively terrible. Um, you'll actually see this in nature sometimes of like pack animals, especially when they're not, you know, on the active hunt, but right. traveling from point A to point B have the oldest or the slowest or the baby. I mean, usually the person with the baby uh, set the pace so you don't end up with the you know the mother and the newborn two miles behind you right right and again there's a time and place for it there's a time when when it's a when you're just maneuvering across the field and you're being careful but you're not in like direct danger in which case you can choose to to keep yourself together a little bit more like this and put some more thought into it but like you said before there's absolutely times when the heat is on you've got pressure and you need to get across that river now uh, so at that point, yeah, the the quick folks <laughs> should should be just doing their quick thing and trying to survive. Pretty much everything we're going to talk about today, there is going to be that, like, this is true to a point. And then once the point of, like, the moment hits, the rules often change a lot. We're picking a fight with a dead guy. You know this. We, we, we do it every time. We enjoy <laughs> what are it. the chances? So yeah, uh, slower elements are in danger of being lost, and there's a couple of ways around this, and there's a couple of times when you're just going to have to let that baggage train go. Uh, cavalry, this was something that I enjoyed that I, that I hadn't necessarily thought of before, but cavalry making picket lines on either side of the crossing. Now again, this, this, this assumes that you have enough folk that count as cavalry 
in order to cover both sides. Now, the other nice thing about like a Belagarth field or a Warhammer 40k board is that often we have a very designated edge of the world. So you like you don't necessarily have to set up a screen on that side because you know <clears throat> that nothing's coming from that direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we're saying form a picket line, we're not necessarily saying the cavalry is going to go attack while everyone else is moving. We mean really just making it aware that if you're going after the convoy, you're going to have to deal with the cavalry. So it could be as simple as, you know, when people look at you as you pass, you give the kind of like warning lift of your sword of the like, I'm not it's starting a fight, but I'm ready for it if you come for me. Right, right. Or if they do come for a fight, like the cav doesn't just go into them and waste their numbers. It's not... They're not a, a sacrifice in this way. They're a delaying action. So I know we talk about Pakshaw a lot on this show, but to be honest, he's going to continue very, to. <laughs> when, when, we, when, when, I, when I think about a good skirmisher, he's the guy that comes to mind for me. Because the, one of the things I've seen him do is he'll go up and go into a threat stance, like within threat range, and like get you know three or four people to like firm up and, and, and tense up and stop what they're doing and pay attention. And then he'll drop his stance and walk away from them. And then about the time that they start to drop their stances and follow him, he'll turn around and, and basically, boo, and, and get them to tense up again. And what this does is it delays the action against him, but it also delays the action against his team, either allowing them to maneuver out of the way or maneuver into position. And uh, having faced it and having had it on my team, let me tell you how freaking effective it is. It's very effective. It's very effective. Yeah, so if you've got some dedicated screeners... Uh, having them kind of on the side of the motion, so on, on one of the flanks or the other, the one that's not against the edge of the world, uh, to kind of run interference while the rest of your, your team maneuvers, it's a really good idea. Especially if you've got disciplined folks like Pakshaw who know when to back off and not waste their lives in a pointless conflict. Mm -hmm. So that's a good idea. We like that one. It's not always practical, but it's, it's a decent one to consider. If you um, can do it, yeah. Yeah. So the last part of the Passage of Rivers, or at least the last point that we want to touch on for this particular uh, occasion, speaking about this concept, is to fortify both sides with strong detachments. So basically what this means is that when you're moving, you want to have strong folks in the front and strong folks in the back. This is a common mistake we see in Belagarth a lot because you're like, I'm going to the front. I'm Usually I am going into an attack. So you're like prepping to go ahead and people will just pick off your stragglers as you go along. Mm -hmm. If you don't want to lose those slower detachments, as we were mentioning just moments ago, uh, make sure they have their defenses there. So this is exact opposite advice of what we had gave just earlier, but it's still good advice of, you know, like, slow those people up front. On the other hand, if you're not going to try that, you know, put turkey up front and maybe keep me in the back because I am strong enough to make you have to work for any win you're going to get, but I'm not going to keep up with the sprint up ahead. Right. Right. And, I, and again, it depends on, on, on who you've got, like what, what different elements you have to your team, what your composition is, what kind of time you have to work with. Cause you know, if, if you're moving nice and leisurely, then sure. Having, having turkey in the delaying element where he can quickly reposition and then having you in the in the vanguard, uh, where you can kind of clear the way ahead, that's it's a nice way too. But you know, if you're also being pressed and you need to remaneuver to a different position quickly, then yeah, those quicker elements, kind of clearing the way and going first, is also a, an option. Both are both are good. 
Like, really, you just want to have strong fighters on both sides. Yes, and I was going to say, either way, you have a strong defense in the front, you have a strong defense in the back, and the people who need a little more help are set in the middle, and they can go whichever direction is most useful. Really, it comes down to, like, who's on your team, and, and what are the needs of your team? Uh, for instance, any of these hard tactics, like any of this, like, rigid moving together idea doesn't necessarily apply to the Dark Angels because we kind of scatter to the wind when, when the fight is called at the beginning and then we come back together to, to engage in these local skirmishes. We do a lot of wolf packing. We're going to probably go over a, a bit more of the kind of tactics that we use uh, more in detail when we get into the, the asymmetrical warfare section. But, but this is very true of line fighting. You definitely want to make sure that, that you've got these strong fortified sides moving together. Yeah. So that's uh, that's good on Passage Rivers, I think. What do you think, Thumbs? I think it's time for Battlefield Examination. Oh, yes. This is one of my favorite sections. I love... This is like Battlefield Intel. Like, collecting Battlefield Intel is like... Oh, it's joyful for me. It's it's math. I like math. I, like, I enjoy numbers. They behave. Uh, and so this is just an extension of math, and I, I adore it. It's... Uh, I enjoy it from different respect than you do because you like it because it's math I like it because it's people and I even if I'm not always the best at engaging with people I enjoy observing people um it's all about knowing what to expect on your side and knowing what to expect on the enemy's side we've talked about it before know thy enemy though know thyself and uh the best way to do that is through battlefield examination so let's let's talk a little bit about what we mean specifically for for these examinations. The first one, of course, is just general numeric superiority. Who's got more? It's as straightforward as you can get. They've got 30 yep. people, you've got 20. Okay, they have that one. They have the general numeric superiority. And as we've discussed before, it is not the most uh, significant superiority to have, but it's not a bad one to have either. Definitely worth keeping an eye on. For sure. Uh, next, we are going to have unit numeric superiority so this would be along the lines of who's got more spears than the other side who's got more large swords than the other side who's got more shields than the other side who's got more fast attack more elites more troop more heavy choices like who's got what different like the different breakdowns that you can do who's got more of it yeah, you know, it's if you're fighting the BOF, wow, they're going to have unit superiority when it comes to shields, probably. But going up against the Gelf, we we will probably have it for archers. Completely different approaches required for each of those. Right, and and if you're if you're going up against you know somebody, if, if like if I've got a lot of fast attack options in something like 40k, and I'm going up against somebody who doesn't have a lot of fast attack options, they're relying more on on like a like a, a bulkier elite force, then my tactics are going to be different than if I was going against lots of troops or lots of heavies. Like knowing who's got more means what you have to work with. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and this also goes for like, who are your sprinters over there? And, and like you were saying, this comes down to knowing people. You have to kind of know what people are capable of for, for this portion as well. But looking over there and being like, okay, who's cav and who's infantry, who's going to be our slow movers and who are going to be our quick movers. Honestly, one of the best ways you can learn this is to leave your camp during the nightlife. Yeah. Or camp in a place that enough people want to come to. One of the two. Uh, But really, just the more involved you are 
beyond just the field, the more you'll know because I'll be like, oh, hey, that is uh, Voss. I, you know, even if I've not fought Voss a bunch, I know Voss well enough to be like, okay, I'm going to expect something weird and quick. Like, that's one approach. I, I enjoy sitting on the side of the field when I'm not fighting and hyper analyzing everybody that I'm watching and, uh, and kind of storing that information for later. But, you know, go out and meeting people is nice. That's a good way of doing it, too. Uh, I do your thing when I'm heralding. Oh, I mean, that's a subtle way of doing it. I just sit there like a creeper and just uh, <laughs> eyes bulging out of my head. Like, uh, oh, who's the, who's the the guy from Death Note? Um, no, I, I would not be the person to ask on that one. Um, light? Is it Light Light Yagami? Is that... Literally have about? never read it. <laughs> if you if you know the, the manga guys, you know who I'm talking about. He's the dude without shoes on who just kind of curls up in his chair and leans forward with the bulging eyes. Like, I've got him in my head. I... Lord, I can't remember his name, though. Advantage of doing it your way, you can focus up a lot more, but downside, you look like a weirdo. Advantage of doing it my way, I can get more onto the field itself and be like, basically, kind of follow people. But downside, I actually also have to be doing things at the same time. Yeah, there's a job to be done. (laughs) Yeah, I I have to actually herald. I can't just, like, wander around being like, man, I'm just going to go wherever Pogshot goes. It's stepped in, no, I'm not going to lie. And both of us go out and uh, and partake of, of nightlife in our own ways as well. So there's a lot of different ways to do all of that. So again, local knowing your local numeric superiority, this comes a lot down to networking. And, 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 and in, in something like 40K or other forms of intellectual wargaming, knowing your codexes, knowing what units you're looking at on the other side of the field. Like if you don't know what Eldar fast attack look like, uh, spoiler alert, they're the flying bikes. Um, but... Uh, if you didn't know that, like you wouldn't, I, I, I would hope that you would assume it looking at them, but you know, just let's say that you don't have common sense. Um, you wouldn't necessarily know what to look for on the other side of the field, as opposed to like, if you would, if you were familiar with the Eldar codex and could be like, okay, well, I know what those are over here and I know what they are on my team too. So local or a, a unit numeric superiority, definitely something to be considered. Local superiority is the next one. And so this is, if we divide the field up into like three sections, for instance, so you've got your left flank, your center, your right flank, and they've got the same. Who's got the local numeric superiority in each of those areas? There's more people in the center on this side. Okay, I really need to be aware of that if I'm standing in the center. Right, right. Or, or you know, you look and you're like, okay, our left flank is a little weak compared to their right flank that's lining up across from it. You know, we need to be aware of the wrap potential that's going on there. Yeah, we either need to reinforce it or we need to move quick on the other bits so we're ready when that side struggles. And honestly, this part is more important in my opinion and in the opinion of Frederick the Great. So, you know, I come highly recommended mm-hmm. um, <laughs> that uh, it's, it's more important than general numeric superiority. It is more important to have local numeric superiority than it is to have the general numeric superiority. Because if you can engage your opponent's army piecemeal, uh, you don't necessarily have to have more troops. If, if the way you're doing it has, gives you local numeric superiority each time. Uh, if you have to fight 10 people and there's just one of you, figure out how to do it Assassin's Creed style, where they come at you one at a time. Yep. Because then you actually are fighting on much more even ground, just repeatedly. Rurouni Kenshin, another anime uh, reference. Yeah, I I really should have gone with ninjas, but uh, Assassin's Creed's where we're at, apparently. (laughs) I'm 
I'm still playing a whole lot of the pirate one. Um, next up, we're going to have quality of arms. This is quality of your arms and quality of their arms, because as always, both sides. Uh, it's not just how beautiful and strong your muscles are, but how good you are with the gear that you were using at the time. And how good that gear is, is, is mm, the, the real emphasis of here. Because if, if you've got one team who's got the state-of-the-art, newest tech, nice and balanced gear, and then one team that's using old PVC. DAG build. <laughs> yeah. Know, like P- PVC with blue foam on it, not balanced. Um, the grip is weird. You know, there's, there, again, it's not the most important superiority, but who's, like, the quality of arms definitely matters. Yeah, uh, since today is just Pakshaw Day, if I have to fight Pakshaw and I really need to win, I would much rather he's using a 15-year-old dag sword than uh, the most recent Gork tech. No doubt. No doubt, yeah. And and uh, so that's definitely to consider. If you're looking at another team and they've got a bunch of outdated gear or a bunch of uh, gear that doesn't match the current meta is another thing that I've seen is is stuff that is either cumbersome or or doesn't work well with what is currently going on, currently being practiced, that also contributes to quality of gear. Um, like there was a, a phase there in Belagarth where if you didn't have a weapon that could get around a heater, you should just get off the field. Like, mm-hmm. that you was weren't just, doing much there, good. <laughs> there are so many heaters on the field that it was like, uh, if you don't have some, if you don't have an answer for that, um, your quality of arms are not up with the meta. Now, you know, a lot of people know different techniques and the, and the different weapons have changed to kind of accommodate that, and you, and you have a different, different meta. Um, and yeah, I mean, again, this is true in, in 40K as well, and in other types of intellectual wargaming, where, um, unfortunately, it's a bit of a pay-to-play game. Like, you, you might have your army, and you might have been good with it in 6th or 7th edition, but then in 8th edition, you know, we, there were some new models that came out, some Primaris Marines, and those Primaris Marines might be a little bit better than the Space Marines at certain things. And so the meta changes. Suddenly, the quality of arms that you know, Space Marines brought to the table are not as good as the Primaris. And I know that there are probably several of my listeners who are hate Primaris and do not want to switch over to Primaris, and I can understand that. Space Marines are cool. Um, I just, I, I love the Primaris models, so I'm a little biased there, but, uh, there's also something to be said for that quality of arms argument. Uh, the advantage of a changing meta is it keeps games from getting stale. The downside, it means that you have to keep investing. But it's also more realistic too. Like, I mean, we've, we've talked about several times on this show, how the, the change in technology or a change in technique radically changed the way that war was fought. Like that's just that's just something that's uh, relatively normal. We're gonna normal talk about for, that today. Like. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna talk about it today. So changing meta is a part of regular war. So it should be a part of war gaming too. I guess is what I'm saying. Like to to imagine a war game that does does not ever change, kind of defeats the purpose of of overcoming the new challenges that the the war simulation presents. Yeah. Uh, where were we on this list that I'm totally not just reading off of my phone? Uh, uh, quality, of quality of arms is where we were at. Okay, so that would bring next up to general condition of the troops. That right. is as straightforward as you can get. If they are tired and hungry, they're not going to do as well as freshly rested and just went through a light round of yoga. Are they cold? 
Are they, like you say, sleep deprived? Are they nutrition deprived? Are they dehydrated? Uh, the general quality of the, are, are their clothes fitting properly? I've, I've definitely seen garb, um, be an issue. Like folk, like I, I, there was one new, they're, they're not a new unit anymore. So I don't want to start name dropping and, and, and get the wrong one, but they were new at a battle for the ring a long time ago. And they had the baggiest clothes I had ever seen. And they looked cool. Do not get me wrong. Their kits were on point. If they had been at a, like a comic convention or something like that, they would have gotten high praise for the quality of their like voluminous, uh, very, very flowy garb. But when they started trying to sprint around on the field and fight in real time, their pommels Just kept getting caught. all over themselves. Yep, pommels getting caught in sleeves, tripping up on themselves. Like, it was, they were all over the place. And, uh, and I, again, I, I can't cleanly remember who it was. They probably changed it. I would imagine that they, they saw their error and kind of went in and, and figured out some workaround for that issue. But that, that also plays into it. Like, do your, do your clothes fit? Do your shoes fit? Are they moist? Um, are you used to fighting in it? We've said it a hundred times. We'll say it a hundred more. Uh, if you're not used to fighting in that armor, that armor's working against you just as much as it's working for you. And that, that brings us into our next point, which is the discipline. Like what's the discipline that they have with all of this? Are they, are they accustomed to fighting on the field in hot weather, in cold weather together? Um, are they accustomed to fighting with that gear? You know, the, the, the discipline level. And this can be hard to judge. Like, if you're just looking across the field, it's not necessarily the guys who are standing at attention all in a row. You know, you would you would be a very, very... That would be a sore guess against the Dark Angels because we are very disheveled before the fight starts. We're just kind of sitting there talking. Some people have their gear down. Some people are, are you know, stretching or whatever. Like, we do not look ready, as it were. We do not look disciplined. But our discipline comes in our movements. And so... I actively avoid trying to look disciplined. Which is always a problem when people want to take pictures. They're like, guys, look like you're into it. I'm like, that's not how I do, though. No, I, it was something that I had to fight against because, I mean, my, my training comes from military experience. And so my want, even even knowing, like, the way that my team fights and the way that, I mean, and, and the way that it works. It works great. Um, but even knowing that, there's a part of me that would love to stand at attention before we start and then go marching out in lockstep British style. Yeah, there's a part of me that would adore that. I don't think it would work all that well on a on a on a Belagarth field, um, no, or on a 40k field for that matter. Like the idea of just having your troops line up and march across the field, it's tempting, especially for certain armies. I can see Necrons, you know, thematically wanting to do that, but uh, there's a reason that we evolved out of that particular style of warfare. Uh, but you can still have all sorts of discipline, even if you look like you're about to like lay down and take a nap. And uh, knowing where you are, knowing where your buddies are, and knowing where your enemy is, if you can pull off all three of those, you're real set. Yep. Yep. And so, again, that discipline can be hard. It, it, do not result to stereotypes in order mm-hmm. to see if somebody has discipline, I guess, is one of the, the cautions that we have for you here. It's another one of those nightlife will help you here because you'll know who's ready. Yep. Next one would be preparedness for an emergency. And, and we're not talking medics here. We're not talking who has the, the best medic kit or a, uh, a flare gun or something along those lines. Um, this is about, like, if something goes wrong in the plan, who is better prepared to deal with it? So a, a balanced force, like if you have a balanced force between your line infantry, your pole arms, and your missile weapons, then I would say that that team is better prepared for an emergency 
than one that goes to an extreme or, or another. So if you've got a team that has no pole arms, but is all archery and all shields, I would argue that they are less prepared for an emergency. Or, or if you've got like all pole arms and all archers, but no shields. We talk about high risk, high reward tactics and the upside and the downside. Uh, this is really just being aware of how high your risk is versus how high the reward is. Uh, yeah. It, yeah. That's a good way to put it. Um, and so the emergency, of course, would be at what point do you start transitioning from reward to risk? And, and how do you kind of play that? Like if my opponent has no archers and is very thick on the pole arms and on the shields, you better believe that I am going to try to use my archers to the greatest advantage. I'm going to try to keep my distance the best that I can and try to try to have those archers shoot as many pole arms as possible before the general action occurs. Uh, whereas like if I look over there and my opponent has no pole arms and relies entirely on archers and shields, then I'm going to repeatedly rush the archers over and over and over again, knowing what a strategic asset they are and knowing how much of a distraction that's going to be for the, for the shield wall. You know, in both of these cases, you got emergencies. At that point, my flankers are almost entirely archer hunters as opposed yeah. to like full on flankers. Yeah. Lots of sprinting. I used to do it. I, I, I can, again, for a, for a round or two, I can definitely be a deep flanker for a round or two, and then oh, yeah. I will go straight to the center of the line. <laughs> I just, I sound like the bellows by the end of it. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, no, I get that. So yeah, preparedness for emergencies, that's important. And so when we're looking at all these different things, one of the big things that Vegetius stresses is to focus on the infantry. Remember, at his time, cavalry played a very limited role in Roman warfare for the majority of the history of Rome. Cavalry was a support element. It was used primarily for chasing down fleeing enemies um, or, or for engaging opponents' cavalry. You know, it didn't necessarily have the heavy involvement in melee that it would later come to have in the, the medieval period. Um, and so, so he's very focused, very focused on where's the infantry, what's the infantry doing, Focus on infantry is about the most Roman sentence you could possibly say, unless you yeah. could figure out a way to add corruption to it somehow. But uh, <laughs> focus on infantry corruption? No, I, that's well, maybe pay off the infantry. Something I don't know. Not important to this. Uh, <laughs> but on the other hand, if you got someone like Alexander the Great, they'd probably be like focus on the cavalry. Uh, for Belagarth, since we don't actually have proper cavalry, focus on the infantry. Yeah, yeah, definitely focus on where your heavy hitters are. I mean, flankers are definitely something to consider. You know, if a, if a shy or a turkey feathers or a hobbit gets behind you, they are very dangerous and need to be accounted for. That being said, that ball of EBF fighters that's coming up right in front of you is all you'd also need to be considering that too. Like, manage the sides, make sure that they don't get behind you, but definitely make sure that that, that <laughs> center portion is also dealt with. They're all going to run at the same time. It's real scary. Uh, yeah. And in, in something like uh, 40K, for instance, the infantry is what can go and, and grab your um, objectives the easiest. Like, you, you know, you might be able to grab them early on with fast attack, but infantry are going to be what sustain it. And so paying attention to where your opponent has their infantry and what they're intending on doing with that infantry is very important. Um, or, or to talk about chess, for instance, uh, one of my absolute favorite games, and I will tell you my absolute favorite piece in chess is the pawn. I love the pawn. It is the most important p 
piece in the entire game, and that would be infantry in my mind. Like you're, you're just your base cannon fodder infantry are the pawns, but using the pawns, you can shape the battlefield. Yep, because you're kind of determining the lanes of combat with it. Right, right. And so, yeah, in, in a lot of ways, we agree with Vegetius here. You want to focus on the infantry, you want to focus on where that, that big center of power is. And this doesn't mean ignore the other elements, it just means be have a plan. Have a plan to deal with that. After that, we're going to go into character of the enemy, which is kind of everything we've been talking about. Is this opponent someone that is going to run, or is it someone that's going to stand? Uh, is it, you know, when facing me, uh, usually, especially with my spear, you're going to know, okay, he's going to have a really good direct on offense, but sides are way more difficult to deal with, as opposed to Turkey, the other person we can't stop talking about in this podcast. Hi, Turkey. You, you know that the side to side is going to be a much bigger thing to deal with. Right. Right. Uh, and like you said, are, are they going to run? Will they stand their ground? Are they reckless? That's another important character trait to know about your enemy is can they be baited? Um, I remember like Germania, for instance, was a was a unit that was a part of Belagarth a while ago. I haven't seen them be all that active more recently, but they had a real hit or miss strategy in that if they could actually keep their discipline and kind of keep their heads about them, they worked really well together. They had some very large shields, they knew how to use them, and they had some good tactics. But more often than not, they would succumb. Uh, you world leaders players will know all about this. They would succumb to like a barbaric rage and kind of come sprinting across the field at you one at a time, which allowed for you to deal with them in a far more uh, at ease manner. You know, I'll, and so I'll say this about Germania: they wanted to play Viking berserkers, and they committed to it. They did, they did. I mean, I, I, their their camp was Viking berserker. Their mentality was Viking berserker. They had that down. Um, but knowing that character about the enemy, knowing that they could be baited into rash action, definitely was was on my mind when I fought them. Oh yeah, even in even in like a tournament, even in just a one on one. I I remember there was one spear tournament where I went in against uh, Rias. Um, and he was using a big old spear, like a big old proper size spear. And I went in with a little javelin shorter than me, like five foot long javelin. And I'm pretty good at defending with it. And so I, I focused entirely on that. I was like, you know what? I can frustrate him. I can get him to close with me if I can get him to just get a little miffed. And so I was just defending, just boop, just blocking his spear to side, to side, to side, to side. And eventually he got mad and ran in on me grabbed hold of my javelin and we went to the ground and I bent the javelin and stabbed him in the chest. And I, I was very proud of that. But, you know, if I had tried to go range for range with him, he'd have eaten me up, yeah. you know, because he, he absolutely had the range. So I had to bait him, knowing his character, into coming in and, and coming after me. Because you understood the character of your enemy. Yep. Yep. And so, again, the, the big ones you want to look out for are cowardice and uh and rashness those are the some of the, the big traits the big character traits and then of course like whether or not they're good at what they do like you know the the character of their swing and all that that's obviously important too but knowing whether or not they're going to run is it's just impossibly important what's well, nice and you can know this a lot of the times without necessarily knowing the person like you said one of the most important things to getting to uh, for most of this information is is going around and getting to know people off of the fighting field this is one of the ones that you can kind of gauge from your first encounter with a new person. Because if you come walking up on a new person and you're making really good eye contact and they are kind of shying away from it and they're like, and they're kind of backing away from you and like avoiding direct eye contact, you know a lot about that 
that fighter's character in that moment. Whereas if somebody, if you walk up on somebody and their chest bows up and their eyes meet with you and they've got a fire behind their eyes, you're like, okay, I, I know something about this fighter's character as well. Um, so there's, there's definitely some, some uh, sizing up you can do on the field with this one too. And then the last one is the advantage of ground for infantry versus cavalry. And this is something we've talked about in, in last or in former sections as well. The idea that um, very, very clustered ground or kind of, um, oh, what's another word for it? Places where you got like trees or fortifications or, oh, or yeah. that sort of thing. Anywhere that's kind of like condensed or busy. I, I'm not picking great terms for this, but you all understand yeah. what we're trying to say. Full. Yeah, that's that's where you want your infantry. Yeah, where you, where you want a lot of where there's a lot of stuff going on, where there's a lot of places to hide, where there's a lot of places to to use fortifications. That's where you want infantry, and then open plains is all about the calf. And so, who's like on the field that you're on? Is it more open? Is it more solid in terms of like the, all the masses being together? And who has more infantry and cavalry in those situations? Pretty straightforward. Well, I think that's a. Uh, that's about as much as we want to say about battlefield intelligence for this uh, episode. What about you, Thumbs? I think it's time to jump on to uh, section two right after this. Motives for engagement. So you may notice that in this show, much like in a lot of these books, a lot more time is spent talking about the preparation and the mentality entering the battlefield as opposed to the actual fighting itself. And there's a reason for this. The reason is uh, battles themselves are over very quickly, but their consequences are lasting. Therefore, uh, a lot of preparation has to go into, uh, and we're talking like days, weeks, months, years of preparation go into one battle. Most battles last, again, uh, either minutes or, or mere hours. They're not, they're not super long in the, in the majority of history. Um, and to this end, Vegetius offers us a good quote here. Good officers decline general engagement where the danger is common and prefer the employment of stratagem and finesse to destroy the enemy as much as possible in detail and intimidate them without exposing our own forces. So, Again, so this section is called Motives for Engagement. And so what we're talking about are the reasons to start like a big fight. Again, whether you're doing intellectual or physical wargaming, you're starting on a predetermined battlefield and everybody knows where they're supposed to be and the, and the fight is, it's there. You know, you're already, you, you, like the maneuvering is done by and large in terms of like the country, like a, in a, what would normally take place in a battle and the battlefield has been decided. That is where it's at. But in terms of coming to a general engagement, that's where the majority of your forces are engaged with the majority of their forces. You're in the scrum, as it were, rugby terms. Um, and and, and, the, and like he says, you don't need to be too eager to go into that. Like even if, even if you have a bunch of superiorities, that doesn't mean that you should be going into this. So we're going we're gonna to talk about this. And so the, the first point here. The first really big point is that overconfidence should be absolutely banished. Put it from your mind. Every opponent you need to treat like they could kill you because they could, because yep. random chance happens. I mean, we've talked about it to death. Noob Fu, uh, the person who has just picked up a weapon and he's, and never used it before is going to try stuff that you would never try. Because you're like, no, that never works. That would, that's an insane idea. Uh, 
so you don't guard against it either. Because that's insane. Why would you do that? And then but, they get you with it. <laughs> and then they win a new tournament. Like, it's... Uh, it, it's how it goes. So... And, and also, just on a personal level, anytime I go into a battle going, I'm going... To, like, not like I can win this, but like, I have to win this. I'm better than this person. I will fight worse. Yeah. Yeah, because again, this is a double-sided sword and both edges are equally sharp. You want to avoid that overconfidence at all costs, but you also never want to underestimate your opponent. So overestimation of self and underestimation of your opponent are two of the most lethal decisions that you can make uh, in wargaming or in, in an actual fight. Like, you want to assume, like Thumb said, that anybody can get you, that anybody is capable, um, and act accordingly. You know, I, I I think I've told this story before, though I'm not sure if I had. When I was in judo, I had just come out of basic training. So I was I was pretty confident in my abilities. I was just starting to take some judo classes, and, and I was pretty decent at it because um, that, that uh, ground combat was what they taught in the military, and I, I was practicing it from the time I was a kid. So I was pretty good at it. And I came into this class, and there was a, a gal in there who was a belt level above me, and we were put up against one another. Now, she was about half my everything, about half my size, about half my width across, about half my height. She was tiny by comparison, and I honestly thought the instructor was being cruel by putting us together, and he was, but just not in the way that I thought. Yeah, just not because, to her. <laughs> yeah, just not to her, because after the, the lay-on was called, I suddenly found myself in the air, and then in a very uncomfortable knot on the floor. And as I was sitting there in my very uncomfortable knot, I realized my hubris in coming into it, just assuming that I was a large, muscular, trained male, that I, you know, that I didn't have to put forth any effort and that I was just going to beat my smaller opponent with no effort. Uh, I was wrong. I was very wrong. And 100% your instructor did that on purpose in the same way that you and I struggled in Belagarth against small people once they learned to take a step closer. Right. And suddenly they yeah, were inside our defenses. Like, Yep. Yep. Once they, once they stopped being afraid of us and once they were like, nope, I'm just going to get a little bit closer. We were like, how do, how do I do this? I don't understand. Like, <laughs> and then we had to tighten everything up. Long story short, never go into a fight thinking, oh, I for sure got this. Right. Right. And so, yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah. Overconfidence and underestimation are, are definitely things to be avoided. Uh, the next thing when you're considering motives for engagement are temporization or speedy action. So temporization is just, do you wait or do you move? And of course, both sides have their advantages. Uh, if you choose to temporize, uh, you want to do it when you're unsure of enemy disposition, location, or strength. But at the same time, you want to be sure to maintain battle readiness to take advantage of opportunities. Again, you're not just sitting there waiting for the battle to happen. Like it's an active state, this, this temporizing. It's still an active state. You're still paying attention. You're still engaged with what's happening on the field. You're just not actively taking action yet. And the other side of this is speedy action. And, and speedy action is called for when you spot a clear advantage or opportunity. If there's a reason to take that speedy action, uh, definitely go for it, but also be aware of changing battlefield conditions and be ready to act accordingly. You know, speedy action isn't, like we said with Germania, you know, they would just kind of decide to charge and there would be this haphazard, uh, disorganized charge coming at you. And that isn't speedy action, that's rash action. And that is, that is to be avoided. Um, 
a speedy action is like, okay, we see an advantage, like their, their forces are divided or something like that. We're going to move en masse against this one side and kind of have a two, 2v1 advantage. You know, that's seeing an advantage and moving quickly to, to go to it. As long as everybody's, you know, moving together and has the same general idea of the plan. Um, yeah, that's all speedy action. And so th this is a big choice. It's always the ever, and, and this changes. This will change throughout the course of the battle. There is a time to temporize and a time for speedy action. Like you're going to be going back and forth multiple times. The thing to be careful as, as a leader when thinking about this for yourself and what you want the other leader to be doing if you're lucky is uh, be careful you don't freeze between the two. Right. Right. There's a, there, that's a bad place to be. It's real easy to do that on accident. So, uh, speaking from my experience, it's okay to make a choice. Yep. And, and in what, like what we're doing here, uh, you want to trust your instincts. And especially if you are in a leadership position and people are looking to you, you want to trust your instincts out there on the field because worst case scenario, you're wrong. Your team loses, but you get to come back with more refined instincts next time. Um, you don't really learn anything by being lost in the inability to make a decision. Like that doesn't teach you anything other than you should probably be making a decision. So yeah, uh, either to temporize or speedy action, a constant question to be asking oneself and to be asking your battlefield conditions. Uh, the next thing you want to be thinking about when you're considering your motives for engagement is whether or not you have dependable auxiliaries, mercenaries, and or joiners. So to kind of define each of these things separately, an auxiliary would be like, because I'm in the Dark Angels, for instance, and the Dark Angels are part of a larger group called the Triad. Our unit, the Dark Angels, sometimes is with the other two units, the BOF and the EBF, and we act as auxiliaries toward one another. So that would be a, an example of like an auxiliary, somebody that you're used to working with, somebody who's accustomed to your, to your habits, to your patterns, behaviors, methods, techniques, all that sort of thing, but who isn't necessarily a regular part of your unit or of your crew. Yeah. Kind of you and I these days. Yeah. That's, we, we'd be auxiliaries to one another because, yeah, we, we're very good at fighting with one another. We're quite familiar, but we're not necessarily on the same team. So, yeah, if, when we're on the same team, we would be auxiliaries. Yeah, the next one is the, the mercenaries. So the mercenaries, like Thumbs and I have a lot of experience being mercenaries. It is real important to be dependable when you are a mercenary. Like really, yes. if we're going to talk about this, I, we're going, you and I specifically are going to talk about it from the mercenary point of view. Uh, you need, if you want to get hired again, you need them to know that you will show up. Yep. And when we say we're mercenaries, like, yes, in game, we're mercenaries, but also for legit, we are mercenaries within this community. Like I have been paid to go and fight on, on teams multiple times, um, throughout the course of my career. Like that's something I've advertised myself on and, and thumbs is much the same way. We were a part of a unit. There was the Dreadgate Mercenary Alliance where we were, um, being paid to like fight with people or whole unit. Uh, the thing to consider with this, either when hiring mercenaries or when running them, is the, it, again, the cost value thing is going to come up because, say, uh, I am coming in with several other people with me, that does make us more valuable, assuming everyone shows up. Right. Yeah, because, uh, I mean, one of the things that we saw when we were in the DGMA is, I mean, there would be tournament or, or events where everybody was spot on. Everybody was, was geared up for it. Everybody wanted to participate. Our team that we brought 
was solid. It was what we had talked about. Like it was, it was one of the, like it was the numbers that we had guaranteed and we really gave a good showing. And then there were other events where either because we were losing or because people just had other things they wanted to do, they would either not show up to the field or give a lackluster performance on the field. In fact, there was a couple of times I remember our own members leaving who they were supposed to be, who, who we had like contracted with to go and fight with their friends. Yeah. And you're like, no, 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 you can't do it. No, honey, no, come back. <laughs> do you understand what a contract means? Yes. Uh, so these are all things to consider hiring or being a mercenary. And it's great. I highly recommend being a mercenary at some events if you can. If nothing else, just for the experience of it. But if you want to keep it up, it takes actual effort. And, and part of the reason that Thumbs and I were able to build a bit of a career on being mercenaries is that he and I were dependable. Like after I left the Dreadgate Mercenary Alliance, I didn't stop being a mercenary. I continued to be one uh, till now. I'm still a mercenary. Yeah, I don't, I don't do it much these days, but if I uh, went to an event where there wasn't much golf presence, oh, in a hot second, I'd do it. Uh, it's exactly what I do. If I'm going to a place that doesn't have strong uh, Dark Angel or Triad presence, I'm like, all right, who so wants me? So the entire West Coast. And, and part of the reason I can do that, though, is because I have a reputation. Those who have hired me speak well of me because I come and I give it my all. I may not be the best person on their team. I may not be the person who's scoring the most points or getting the most kills. But they do know that I am right there in the heat of the action every time giving my all for that team to be able to win. And I don't want to say whether or not I've made teams win or not, but my efforts have certainly contributed. Um, oh, yeah, 100%. And the and knowing that I'm going to reliably be there for every unit battle or for every for every battle that I've been hired for and that I'm going to be putting forth that kind of effort makes it so that I'm far more likely to get hired uh, the next time that I'm available. Uh, the final one of our groups here that we're uh, defining is the joiners. Yeah, joiners. Joiners, of course, are the random people that come up to you on the field and they're like, hey, man, do you mind if I fight with you? And you're like, yeah, sure, dude, whatever. Stand over there. Um, joiners sometimes I feel like get a bad rep in Belagarth. They actually can be very valuable. And if you're not in a unit, you're probably going to end up being a joiner in a lot of cases. Yeah, yeah. If you're if you're unitless, you're you're basically a joiner at that point. So there's nothing wrong with it, but you need to kind of be aware that it's much more likely to be a wild card of what you're getting. Right. And the loyalty is going to be the weakest of the three here. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, again, it uh, depends on what's happening. Again, if I'm, if I'm at an event and somebody that I know decently well, like somebody who, I, who I'm decent friends with, like I'm not in their unit, we haven't necessarily fought together, but I know that they're a, a stand-up person and I've, I've, maybe I've seen them fight and they're like, hey, I, I want to come fight with you guys this time around. You're like, oh yeah, sure. And then you can, you can depend on that person a lot more. Uh, whereas, you know, if, if there's just somebody randomly coming up who you don't know anything about, it's probably best not to, I mean, let them on for sure. Like if it's not some sort of closed team, for sure, let somebody join, but don't depend on don't them Don't put them much. in the center of your line. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. That's exactly the point. Um, yeah. And so uh, this, again, this whole, this whole little mini section is dependable auxiliaries, mercenaries, and joiners. And if you're going to have auxiliaries, mercenaries, and or joiners, 
you want to know how dependable they are before they become part of this motive for engagement. Recall, uh, again, that, that battle with Hasdrubal, where all these Gauls joined up, they were all super stoked to come and bring it to the Roman Empire, and then the night before the battle, they got super drunk and were not that useful the next day. Those are not very reliable auxiliaries right there. That is the most uh, timeless story of someone helping you out in a battle situation that I could possibly think of. Hey, I'll help out. I'm just massively hungover. That's fine, right? <laughs> yeah, it'll be great. <laughs> yeah, so again, having those dependable allies is, is a very important thing. Um, and if you're going to be an ally, like we were talking about, if you're going to be a mercenary uh, or you're going to be an auxiliary to somebody, make sure that you're dependable. Make sure you're somebody they're going to want to re- rely on again because that stuff gets around. You know, part of the reason I can get hired is because of good word of mouth. And I'm sure if it were the case were reversed, that I would have just as hard a time getting hired because people would be like, oh, pff, that guy doesn't work at all. Uh, he's in his tent all day long. At that point, you have trouble even being a joiner. Yeah. Yeah, at that point, people are like, no, nah, I just, you just over there. Just... <laughs> we'll be fine. Team of one. Um, so yeah, the, the next thing to consider when you're looking at your motives is the morale factor. And there's several different things that go into the morale factor. Uh, if you're sure you're going to win, your morale, it tends to be pretty good. What? I know, right? Now, this isn't overconfidence. Remember, we had cautioned against overconfidence in the beginning, but this is just certainty of victory. Me looking across the field, making my my assumptions, making my predictions about how the fight's going to go, and then what that does to my mood afterwards. You know, if I'm looking across the field and I'm like, okay, they've got a small team and it's mostly new people, my certainty of victory just went through the roof. Or if I'm looking across the field and I'm like, they've got all vets, I've got all noobs, and there's a bunch of them, well, my certainty just dropped. Uh, one thing that I have had to work on is uh, keeping a positive attitude, uh, keeping a loud positive attitude, even when I have not a certainty of victory. Right. Uh... Because, and this is just a thing of the part of the re- way I vent frustration is I vent it vocally. But if I am not careful, you know, if I do it around like, you were turkey, you guys know that he he's just working it out. If I do it against, uh, with people I don't, who don't know me or people who are new, this will just wreck morale. Yeah. In the same way. It's something I've tried. Was working on training newer people in Stygia did not do, of seeing the the vets on the other side and going, "Oh no, we're bones," and being like, "Nope, right, you're not going into it that way." Yeah, you got to banish that thought from your head too. Like I, I get that all the time with my students, where they're gonna they come against me and they they don't strike a very good pose or they they don't really like move much in it, and you're like, "Okay, why weren't you fighting back?" And they're like, "Well, I was going to lose anyways." And it's like, well, if you've got that mindset, then yes, yes, you've already lost if you have that mindset. But you got to at least believe in the chance of victory, mm-hmm. you know, like that. You got to at least believe in the possibility that you can win because you always can. Like I've seen the most, like the most un, unreasonable matchups go exceptionally well, um, just out of luck. So anything can happen. And this this even matters in a non-physical way too. Like in, in like for forty k, like. 
it, it absolutely matters there too. Like if somebody comes to the table and they're super trepidatious and they're not sure of victory or, or they've already gotten inside their own heads, they're going to become far more frustrated with, with drawbacks. Like I've got a, there's a, a couple of people in my club that um, they'll say, right, coming into it, they're like, well, I expect to lose against you. And I'm like, well, don't, why would you, why would you do that to yourself? Cause then like a round or two in, if they're on the, on the back foot for whatever reason, they're like, okay, I've already lost. Oh, either yeah, throw in I the towel or this, yeah, or just play a crap game the rest of the time, and it's like, well, no, you're you're, this was a mistake, but your continued, like, dwelling on the negativity, like, made it worse, like, made it so much worse. So you got to get out of your own head. You got to get out of your own head. This one, at least believe you can win. Again, fitting with this episode basically being about dichotomy. Earlier, we said overconfidence must be banished. Really, we could sum this part up as underconfidence must be banished as well. Right. And, and this next one here plays directly into that certainty of victory, which is the sureness of arms. How, how good are you, how certain are you of your ability to use that weapon well? You know, thumbs, if you've got a spear in your hand, how is your sureness of your arms? You know, much higher than when I have, say, a bow and arrow in my hands. And now, what uh, contributes to that sureness? Oh, uh, years of practice. There you go. So years of practice, uh, getting those muscle memories down, getting everything in place, having the technique, having made the 10,000 mistakes in order to get that experience. Yeah, that gives you sureness of arms. So if you don't have it in anything, the only thing for you to do is practice, practice, practice. You know, if I've got, if I've got two sticks in my hand, I'm pretty sure I've got, I, I, I'm very proud of my ability to move my limbs independently and I'm quite a good Florentiner. So if I've got two sticks, I'm feeling pretty sure of myself. You put a spear in my hand, conversely, I get very confused. I'm, I'm not bad at spear, but it's it's probably my worst, my worst uh, weapon, my worst weapon style. So in using that, I'm not going to be nearly as sure of what I'm doing with it than I would be if I was using two small swords. Uh, the way to combat this is try everything. Really, honestly. Uh, we've talked about before, if you're not sure of what, how to beat something, use it. If you, yeah, just any kind of skill with it. On the downside, you run the risk of, if you play with everything, not specializing in anything. Right. Right. And, and I mean, I, 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 like be, know each of the styles for sure. Like I agree with you in, in so much as like become familiar with the general techniques and, and, and methods of each style. But obviously there's going to be some things that, that you gravitate to, towards more than others. Like I know, I know some fighters that exclusively use one style and I honestly think they hobble themselves in doing so. Most of us end up with two styles that we're pretty good with a couple more that we're okay with and one or two that we're like, I just don't know what to do there, man. I mean, that's true. That's true. And, and, and that's just, that's human experience. So, um, so if you, if you are using an off style, be, be, be aware of that. Like if I'm using a style that I'm not as confident in as another one, I'm not going to put myself front and center in the middle of the field. First person to make contact sort of thing. Cause I, my sureness of arms are not there. I'm not as useful there as I am looking for opportunities somewhere else. Um, yeah, yeah. So that, that sureness is a, is a, is a fluid thing that's going to change based on what you're using and when you're using it. Um, and this last point, uh, on this morale factor is the idea of team synergy. 
Now, this is a very modern word. Uh, Vegetius did not use the word synergy. I, I threw this one into the notes because I, he spent about a paragraph explaining this concept, and I was like, this is a, a single word that defines this. Um, but basically, this means if the team likes one another and works well together, that's, that's the, the basis of synergy. So, like, for instance, if Thumbs and I are, are shoulder to shoulder in the line, we're going to have some pretty good synergy. We've been good buds for a goodly long time, and we know each other's fighting styles. We know when to duck in and when to duck out. And yeah, so the I don't two even of us have to on... speak with you when we're fighting anymore. Just yeah, no, it just know. happens. Just happens. So so that synergy is good, and that I mean, there's there's a lot of different combos like that that I can think of in Stygia or that I can think of in my unit that work out really well. But on the opposite of this, you also have like a negative synergy type thing. For instance, um, there's definitely been people. I, 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 you know, I'm human. There's definitely been people in my career that I have not liked at all. Don't want to be anywhere near them. Don't want to be on the same team as them. And so if I'm shoulder to shoulder, that person in the line and they start to get a little out of position and maybe might get killed, I maybe might let them. <laughs> yeah. That synergy is going to be bad. Yeah. And, and that's, and obviously overall for the team, that's a bad thing for me to do. Like that's a very selfish move for me to make from a very personal level that sacrifices a otherwise could be useful player for the team because I don't want to work with them. But that, that happens. Like I'm going to go way more out on a limb for thumbs if he's in trouble than I will for somebody that I don't like. So being mindful of that synergy, being mindful of, uh, of who works well with each other and who gets along and of course, who's got that time and grade? You know, Thumbs and I were in our, one of our very first units together. And then we have worked together a lot ever since then. So again, that synergy is a lot stronger. Uh, usually we argue to use all of this against your opponents. This is one where I'm going to say be aware of it, but maybe don't try and manipulate it directly. Like, oh man, on yeah. our vacation time, I'm going to make Thumbs hang out with Jim Bob, who he hates, <laughs> uh, just to make sure that I have a better advantage. Don't do not do that. But yeah. if you notice I'm next to Jim Bob, then you know that you have a better chance than when I'm next to Malark. Exactly. And that's, that's exactly the idea is, is when you're looking across the field, if I'm like, oh, those two are next to each other, they hate each other. That's awesome. I'm going right after that section. <laughs> we should also uh, say it's not always just someone that you hate. There's just sometimes people that your style does not mix with theirs. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and that's just another thing is, is, and I've definitely been next to people who I liked them just fine, but we were tripping over each other this, the entire time. Cause we just didn't, just didn't mash up in that way for sure. Um, so yeah, team synergy is an important part of morale. Uh, next thing that we're going to want to consider is early target priority. So this is like when you're first coming to terms, when you're first like engaging with your opponent, what, what, like what kind of early targets should you be after? Easy wins might be a one to go after. You know, anything that you can use to weaken the opponent with very little danger to yourself. Uh, Those if, weak and poorly armed attachments. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you have several archers and there's a red on the other side, then for those archers, that red is going to be an early target priority. If you're looking onto the other side and you notice across from you that the majority of the, the newer folks got stashed there and they don't look to have a plan, that's an early target priority for you. Again, like at practice, like when we're in Stygia or when I'm working with my students, I do not 
advise people to go after the weakest targets because I don't like that. You know, in a practice setting, you're supposed to be trying to get better. So you should be going after the toughest target on the field. But in a event sort of situation, particularly in like a tournament or something, yeah, yeah, you're going to want to go after those weak targets first. Yeah. Uh, don't have shame. We're not, you know, if you're just beating up on the new people, that's just bullying. Don't do that. But if you're at the show and, man, the left side is not strong right there, then you hit that left side. Yep. That same thing with poorly armed attachments. If you're looking across the field and you notice that there's an area that has a bunch of folks that don't have um, very good gear, like a bunch of folks that are just using a single sword, um, yeah, maybe go after them. Because, again, any bodies that you can drop off of the other team without losing your own in, in a similar, like, a pitched battle, that's always good. That's always good. And one of the, like, this section, when Vegetius was talking about it in the book, he was speaking about it specifically for raw or, like, unblooded troops. But I, I think it works for just, like, when you're first coming onto the field and kind of sizing up your opponent, this stuff works really well for it, too. Um, and the other way to do this with your early target priority is your frequent skirmishes and very slight encounters. We've talked ad nauseum about the idea of skirmishers and, and their role that they play. Um, but the slight encounters is another way of doing this. Coming in, having like a pitched battle for a second, but then pulling back from it and repositioning. You know, just because you're there, just because you're committed, then doesn't mean that you have to stay there. Yeah. Uh, not every action has to be all the way through. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if every single clash is a decisive action, then it's always 50-50. Then you're always leaving it to 50-50 chance. Whereas if you, you know, knock off a flanker there, hit a poorly armed person there, well, every, every single person you knock off, the, off that other team tilts those odds in your favor. And it's the same thing in 40k too. Like if, you, if, you've got, if you're looking across the field and I see a bunch of Terminators... I'm like, okay, there's Terminators. And then they've, they've got other, like, let's say Space Marines and Astra Militarum. So you've got Terminators and you've got Guardsmen. If I've got light arms, I'm shooting those Guardsmen first. Like, yes, those Terminators are a bigger threat. Yes, those Terminators are going to eventually probably do more damage. But those Guardsmen are going to die faster, which means that that's less space they can take up, less shots that they're firing out, and more focus that I can put on those Terminators later on. Well, it's exactly like what you were talking about earlier in it of putting the faster people in the back, possibly here. Uh, if you need to defend some of your weaker things, because your opponent would much rather fight the bikers and then the primaries or whatever. I'm picking 40k <laughs> words and hoping it makes sense. Uh, or at least one at a time, as opposed to both of them at the same time. Uh, uh, but yeah, so, so in these ways, um, when you're, when you're looking for your target priority, you're looking for easy targets, you're looking for ways to whittle away. Obviously, if you've got an opportunity to take down something big or somebody who's really powerful, take it. Like uh, there's, there's nothing telling you that you, sh you can't go after those kind of opportunities, but just if they don't present themselves going after weak, poorly armed attachments and using frequent skirmishes and slight encounters to like batter the enemy is a good way to do it. Um, and then the last thing that we've got here for the motives of engagement is this cautionary um, kind of reassessment of what we were talking about before, which is that superiority does not mean that you should enter into a general engagement. Just because you have superiority in one or in multiple of those different battlefield examinations that we had in section one, uh, that doesn't mean that you just need to rush into it. 
there's still a thing to be said for patience. There's still a thing to be said for taking your time and having a properly executed plan and not just going in and hoping that things work out. Because what I see a lot in, in particularly in, in Belagarth, because that's where I do a lot of my physical wargaming, is that after the lines meet, in a many cases, it becomes a hero battle. You have a hundred small one-on-one -on -one fights that are taking place on the field. And the results of those one-on-one -on -one fights will determine the results of the battle. This is not like, I don't, I, what's the point of being on a team if you're going to fight that way? Like what's, what is the point of, of working together if you're not actually going to work together? And so having superiority doesn't mean much unless you're going to actually use it. Um, and then it, when you are using it again, got to be careful of that overconfidence. You can use speed without rushing into things. That's very important. We discussed it before. There's a difference between that berserker charge that's kind of, you know, disheveled and all over the place and a, a measured cavalry charge. And then you need to have caution, but you can't hesitate. Hesitating is death on the battlefield or in a one-on-one -on -one fight or, or, or anyway. Like hes hesitation will get you killed very quickly and on your opponent's terms. So, so yeah, uh, it's, it's you got to be careful to look out for these pitfalls. Well, and just because you have superiority now, you have to remember in Belagarth, we're very rarely, if we're th if you're thinking like a unit battle or something, uh, you are very rarely just fighting one team versus the other team. So you might have superiority against unit A, but then you have to deal with unit B afterwards. So is it worth diving into that full equation? Right, right, right. Um, so yeah, that's... that's uh... That's kind of been the majority of our episode. Uh, you about ready to get into some, some battle action there, Thumbs? I think it is time to uh, go out to sea. All right. If we're going out to sea, we might as well talk about Operation Z. day that technically the day uh before we recorded this the originally we we're going to record this was uh december 7th the battle of pearl harbor day so we thought that especially with so much of it working with our chapter today this would be a very appropriate time for us to cover this battle and in particular we're going to be focusing on operation z and for those of you who haven't studied this particular area yet Operation Z was the uh, the plans and the uh, kind of training that was set in motion by the Japanese in order to carry off the attack at Pearl Harbor. Um, now, in, in studying this, we do not want to in any way take away from those who were lost at Pearl Harbor. Obviously, uh, in the United States, Pearl Harbor Day is a very solemn day where we remember uh, those who were, who were killed there. And so we're, we're not trying to show any insensitivity to the dead or to to the sacrifice for which they died. But in the same token, uh, one must appreciate the tactical ability of the Japanese Navy here. And, and that's kind of what we're going to be focusing on today. Well, and Americans don't always do the best about talking about the lead up to Pearl Harbor. When we talk about World War II here, we kind of talk about it from where we entered. So Pearl Harbor on. And there are so many... Well, and a little bit about, you know, France and the German Wehrmacht, but uh, th there were so many things that happened leading up to it that are all 
you know, as you said, very tragic in a lot of ways, but all really interesting at the same time. And very relevant to what occurred at Pearl Harbor. It wasn't an isolated incident. Um, you know, it, it's often played off as an unprovoked attack that, uh, that there was no, no reason, no, no expectation there. But in a lot of ways, that's a very naive view of what history actually tells us occurred um, in the lead up here. And now again, you know, there was no formal declaration of war. It was technically a surprise attack. Uh, and so you can make your moral judgments on that how you will. But um, again, it didn't occur in a vacuum is what we're saying for sure. So speaking of which, we'll probably, let's give you some, some background as to what uh, led up to this particular um, engagement, this attack. Because it's, it, it's difficult to call it a battle because of what, how one-sided it was. Now, there was a reason for how one-sided it was, and we're going to get into that. But first, let's talk about the period between 1931 and 1940. During this time, Japan is going through a period of imperialist expansion. It begins in 1931 with the invasion of Manchuria, which leads to the Second Sino-Japanese War in 1937, and also the invasion of French Indochina in 1940. So in both of these cases, Japan is looking to expand its land elements, and so it's, it's grabbing up areas in mainland Asia right there, most notably in China and Korea. This is definitely a thing that we don't talk about as much, too. We tend to think of World War II as there is this one big war. Really, it was kind of several, many smaller wars that had kind of been happening the previous few years before that all sort of ended up in one big conflagration altogether. And that was much because, much like with World War I, it was because of these entangling uh, pacts, these entangling alliances that people found themselves in. For instance, the United States at this time, they weren't calling themselves the Allies, it was the Tripartite Pact, and we were an unofficial member of it. We were sending supplies to, like, Great Britain, blatantly flaunting the, uh, the, the terms of neutrality that exist within warfare, and kind of, you know, being like, what are you going to do? We're all the way over here. What are you going to do? Whereas Japan had entered into the Axis powers with Italy and Germany. Um, again, not they were in separate continents. They're not necessarily working to militarily directly support one another, but they're, they're basically saying, I won't get in your way if you won't get in my way, and we're going to kind of work together towards our individual nationalistic goals. They were all kind of aware they were going to duke it out together eventually, but that could happen afterwards. Right, right. At least in this particular case, they were like, you've got some similar uh, mind views as to how government should be done as I do. We're going to kind of uh, ally along those lines. Because that's basically what happened. You had authoritarianism on one side versus um, more democratic ideals on the other. And so... Yeah, and so and so during this period, of course, Japan falls in with the with the rest of the the Axis powers, and also at the same time, there are these little diplomatic microaggressions coming from Britain and from America. In response to this period of imperialist expansion that Japan had undergone, the United Nations, kind of spearheaded by Britain and by America, started imposing increasingly restrictive sanctions upon Japan, including an oil sanction. Now, Japan itself, if you look at the map, Japan is not big. And if you look at a map of, like, relative geography, Japan does not have a whole lot in the way of oil reserves. 
and but at this time, J Japan is an industrialized nation, and everything runs on oil. The tanks, the transports, the planes, the ships, everything is running on oil. And so this is a... <clears throat> a choking maneuver. This is a this is a, a tactic in order to stop the Japanese expansion because a, an army at this time cannot function without oil. So Japan starts kind of looking for other ways to shore this up. And now they had already been considering making attacks into like the Philippines and the Dutch East Indies, but the need for oil kind of ramped up the the need for those plans. However. You know, you're, you're, they're, they're nice and close, and you'd think that that would be a no-brainer. But the Philippines, the Dutch East Indies, and other areas kind of in that, that geographic area were controlled by America as protectorates or by other American allies, for instance, the Dutch or the British. So the Japanese knew that to invade one of those areas was to, without a doubt, provoke a response from America. And the, Jap the Pacific fleet had been recently moved out to Pearl Harbor in order to project power across the Pacific and kind of say, hey, we're here, we're watching. And so the Japanese knew that before they made any moves in Southeast Asia, either towards the Philippines or Dusty Dutch East Indies or anything like that, that they would need to deal with that fleet at Pearl Harbor. So that brings us up to 1940. So early in 1940, there's a spy that is already active in Hawaii. They've been there for, for a while. And they start to pose as a tourist collecting intel. It was a very easy thing to do. You just walk around and you're taking pictures. You know, there's nothing suspicious about that. And, uh, you know, you'd be taking pictures of the bay, you know, the, of the big harbor there. You'd be taking pictures of the different military installations. But every other tourist was as well. So there's nothing that really stuck out about this guy. Um, and this was, this was a good way to collect all this intelligence. This was a good way to get on the ground, very accurate intelligence of not just where things were, but also troop counts, um, when the rotations happened, when most of the fleet was in dock, when it was out on maneuvers, you know, what days the army did what, what days the Navy did what, all of this information was gained over the course of the next year by this spy. The plan of course, was to destroy the Pacific fleet in a decisive battle, very much akin to what had occurred in 1905 against the Russian Baltic fleet. Now, do you know much about the Baltic fleet? This was actually a fascinating uh, battle, at least to me. Um, I'll be um, honest with you. I know almost nothing about it. My knowledge of naval warfare is probably my weakest area of uh, military history. Like, Well, first, a geography test. Do you see what that with the Russian fleet was called, the Baltic fleet? Is the Baltic Sea anywhere near the Pacific Ocean? No. No. Baltic Sea is over on the other side, on the European side of things. And so what had happened here was in response to this, this war that was occurring between Russia and Japan, the Russian fleet had gone all the way over the top of the north and come around in order to have a decisive show out and was beaten. It basically arrived and then sank to the bottom of the ocean because the Japanese were ready. And, uh, and at that point, the war was over. The Russians no longer had the ability to project their power. They were massively overstrung in terms of like people. Russia's huge. And so trying to like move persons back and forth across Russia is very difficult, especially at times right before a revolution. Okay, I did know bits about this. I just didn't place it with the name, but Russia was really sure they were set and they were not set. And they were not set. So J Japan was looking to do the same thing here. They were like, okay, if we can knock out this fleet, we can knock America out of, of the potential th threat range and knock them out of the war. 
so that the logic was decently sound. It worked against Russia, another major superpower. So, you know, it was, it was a, a similar idea they were trying to pull off. Um, now, they did know, coming into it, that there was very shallow water in Pearl Harbor that theoretically barred the use of aerial torpedoes. Now, this is an issue. Aerial torpedoes are very useful, and they were being... Uh, they were they were fairly new at this time, but they were kind of pivotal to naval warfare, especially against other ships. Um, and so they had to figure out a way around this. Now they eventually did with the type the heavily modified Type ninety one torpedo, but initially it was it was an issue. They were like, how are we going to get around this 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 problem of not being able to actually use these torpedoes within the harbor? And the, and the reason for this, by the way, I feel like I should explain this is when you've got an aerial torpedo, you've got a a plane that is coming down basically in a dive bomb and drops that torpedo. The torpedo then goes beneath the waves quite a distance and then rises back up toward the surface where it hits below the bow line on the ship. The problem with Pearl Harbor is that distance that the torpedo needed to go down to in order to start coming back up was further down than the, the bottom of the harbor. So the idea was is that they couldn't, they, the torpedoes would be useless there. Which is why it was picked, but it was also why this was uh, not prepared for. Remember what we said about overconfidence. Mm-hmm. So, the Type 91 was being developed, an answer to that shallow water question. But the, uh, the focus, the overall focus for this battle plan was to destroy the battleships. And there, this wasn't necessarily a bad plan. We kind of poo-poo this in the modern age, knowing the consequences of this battling of this war, but at the time it was fairly sound logic. Every naval uh, combat that had occurred in previous history, at least in my mind, had been basically decided by who's got the biggest, boomiest ships. Like, who's, who's got the, yeah, the, the ability to put out damage and take damage? Pretty much as soon as ships started being actual modes of combat, as opposed to my fleet takes my army over here and then it lands and they get out, uh, the most valuable thing you could do would be to take out the bigger battleship that, you know, could take on three or four of your smaller ones. So now, for the majority of like colonial history, that would have been referred to as like a frigate or back in mm-hmm. ancient times, you would have had a, a quadrireme. But yeah, your, your battleship equivalent at whatever age you were at. Uh, so when we say up to this point, this is the right move to make, we literally mean over the course of thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah, the idea that, yeah, if we knock out their biggest, boomiest ships, they're going to be, they're not going to be able to fight anymore. That was the, the theory behind it. Um, now, one of the ironies that stands out, particularly with the, the vision of, of hindsight that comes, is that they were using aircraft carriers to take out battleships, right? They were already acknowledging the value of the aircraft carrier as a, as a military weapon. Now, aircraft carriers were relatively new. They had been kind of developed a little bit earlier than this, but in terms of like what we think of as an aircraft carrier, this was the first war that they were heavily used in. So this new technology, um, and Japan had the most of them. At this point in, in the war, Japan had the greater navy by far. And so they had a lot of confidence in these aircraft carriers, but it is ironic to me that they chose to focus on the battleships knowing the offensive capability of aircraft carriers. One of the things, you know, when we were talking about meta earlier, of using the new thing in the meta, often the first person that does that is not actually prepared to come up against it themselves. That's true. I know that I was far better at using a flail at first than I was at fighting against one. 
uh, yeah, so uh, this uh, this strategic focus uh, was definitely kind of off in hindsight, but it kind of it did definitely feed into this overall idea of this decisive defeat that was going to to not just knock America out of the war militarily speaking, but also break the morale and and make Americans not want to fight, which uh, you know worked out. <clears throat> yeah, that backfired spectacularly, but. <laughs> So the other part of this plan that was really, really rather specific and was part of the reason that it went off as, as relatively flawlessly as it did was the extreme amount of practice that went in beforehand. Once, once they basically understood the, the, the relative position of the harbor compared to the city and the heights of the buildings and the size of the harbor, they were be able to begin running mock drills, uh, dropping torpedoes and, and practicing where they were going to go at the heights and at the distances that they were going to be realistically doing at the attack on Pearl Harbor. So when the day actually came, everything about that attack was second nature to the Japanese pilots because they had been rehearsing this exact scenario for quite a while. We talk so much about muscle memory. They're literally just doing muscle memory here, but with planes. Right. Right. And so it's not, it's not a matter of, they're not going to get the plan confused because they've done it so many times that, I mean, they could basically do it in their sleep. I do not advise flying a plane in the sleep, in your sleep, but if anybody could have done it, it would have been these pilots. (laughs) Um, so this was the plan. This was the plan, a decisive victory over the Pacific fleet. Um, now initially there was a ground invasion that was planned as well to take Hawaii from uh, America and, and turn it over to Japanese control. But this was ultimately decided against for a number of reasons. Uh, the first one, and one of the more important ones, is that the army's forces were already committed in China and uh, in the planned southeastern or southeastern Asian offenses that were going to occur after Pearl Harbor. So like after the, the Navy was knocked out, the idea was to have the, na- the army very rapidly deploy across Southeast Asia, seizing up these different areas while they still had the, the time to do so. Um, so in that they, they really couldn't spare the forces that it might take to take a, a rather rel- heavy, heavily fortified island, um, or series of islands. The other side of this is that while Hawaii presents a very advantageous position, it, it enables you to project your power all over the Pacific. It is also very difficult to support, particularly from the Japanese side of the ocean. Um, you know, the Americans have... Alaska that was relatively close and then of course the western coast which was right there and so in order to like when it came to like getting reinforcements and moving fleets around it was far easier than trying to get a fleet all the way from Japan over to Hawaii in any sort of time to do anything yeah Um, keeping it was not going to be viable right right and then and on that same line it was too risky it was too risky. Like, why, are, why would we expend all of this manpower and all of these soldiers in an area where they're not necessarily as needed as they would be in the other theater, but where, and, and where it's also most likely going to prove a futile gesture, where the island is most likely going to be taken back anyways because of the, 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 the tentativeness of its position. And so, yeah, the, so they eventually just decided against the ground invasion. It's a really interesting thing to think about because... You know, in a way, you can kind of see it of how Americans have been kind of as a culture in some ways traumatized by uh, even just the fight we had just uh, with the surprise attack and how it would have been if troops had actually landed and taken Hawaii at the time. Um, And I mean, if they could have held it, the 
the Philippines, the entire area that we're talking about, and the entire area we could have worked with would have been theirs. Yeah. But that's a really big if. Yeah, and it was it was a chance that the, the military command was just not willing to make. Um, so they, they decided against it. Now, again, part of the way that we talk about Pearl Harbor in the States is in the way of that it was a complete surprise, that it kind of came out of nowhere, nobody was expecting it, and it just was this devastating ambush um, that caught us with our drawers down, basically. But that's not entirely true. Uh, there were several uh, like notable figures within the United States military complex who had pointed out the air raid vulnerabilities of the island. You know, that's a whole lot of water to police and protect and a whole lot of area for a raid to be launched and, and to not necessarily be able to respond. I remember that radar is relatively new, like brand spanking new at this point. And so this, uh, the, like most of the spotters that were on the island were just that. They were spotters, a physical person sitting in a physical, like, uh, emplacement that was watching the sky. Now, if you were on an idyllic island with perfect temperature and perfect weather and nothing ever happened, ever, would you be overly diligent in your watching of the sky? I'm not overly diligent right now and I don't have any of those advantages. <laughs> but that's just the point. Is is like, it was, it was, there were a lot of vulnerabilities to an air raid. Uh, the other issue is that they had already theorized that the shallow water uh, could be Avoided, like there were there were ways to get around that shallow water in the bay that you could still use those aerial torpedo attacks, but the military command, uh, as a general whole, didn't see fit. They were like, nope, um, the technology as it is right now can't do that, so we're not going to prepare for it. And they didn't. There were no nets or baffles in Pearl Harbor at the time of the attack, so that that would have helped. That would have helped quite a bit, but they were not there. They were seen as a as a encumbrance. They were seen as something that would get in the way of maneuvers. And oh, it'll slow us down to go around <clears throat> these, so we just won't have these defenses. Oh, God, right. where are our right. defenses? Yeah. Yeah. It's better to have defenses and not need them than to not have them and then need them, as is kind of demonstrated here. Um, the other thing is that Japan, this wasn't new for Japan. They had used such tactics before uh, in, uh, against the British colonies, against the Chinese. Their idea for launching these lightning raids, these really fast attacks that came out of nowhere that were very surprising, um, they'd used it before. And they, they had done it before immediately after cutting diplomatic negotiations, too. So this kind of pattern of, of, of strategy, this pattern of, of, of behavior from the Japanese, it was not unknown. Like, it was already an observed phenomenon. And that was warned about. Um, the other warning, one of the other big warnings that was put out there is that the reconnaissance patrols were not wide or frequent enough. I said before that that's a lot of ocean to patrol. Like, Hawaii is very much alone out there. So there's, there's like, it's, it's not like the West Coast where there's a whole half that you don't have to worry about. There's just land that direction. No patrol necessary. You just need to worry about this other half going out to sea. Hawaii is sea. You are at sea if you are at, in Hawaii. Um, I was there a couple of years ago and it was actually kind of disconcerting to look out and just, and to understand that if a decently sized tidal wave come, came along, you were just going to disappear. You're just going to go and that's fine. I'm used to living on the side of a mountain. I'm wildly uncomfortable with that sentence. I was too. I was too. It it uh, took a few Mai Tais for me to be comfortable on that beach. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so this the 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 issue with the the too few reconnaissance planes was a big issue, and part of the reason that the raid was not spotted sooner. And then the last little warning is that the Japanese code had recently changed, and they were having trouble deciphering it. There was a lot of chatter, 
but they were having trouble deciphering it. And so it was deciphered entirely too late. But one could have guessed that with that increased chatter in the area that there was probably going to be an attack. Now, most people assumed that the Japanese were going to attack, but not there. Again, the Philippines were a far more likely target, far easier target than going all the way to Pearl Harbor. And again, that overconfidence was part of the reason why the attack went off so well. So let's go to the attack, or at least the preamble to the attack. November 26, 1941, a carrier force under Nagumo leaves for Hawaii under strict radio silence. This was one of the big things that kept this fleet from being detected, is that after they left, there was no radio contact. They didn't radio back, they didn't get any radios to them. There was no way to trace where they were based on radio activity. Yeah, which was the main, like, the only way to keep track of fleets back then. But to be able to do this, they had to have incredible discipline throughout the fleet, and they had to have everything they needed. They needed to make sure that they wouldn't need to radio back for more fuel or more ammunition or anything along those lines. So they, the, the planning that went into making sure that the escort fleet had absolutely everything that they would need in order to get to Hawaii and back was a massive undertaking. And so just the, the sheer amount of prep that went into that, it was actually one of the cooler parts of this story and, and just understanding what they were going to need to get there and back. And remember that this was a Hail Mary pass in a lot of ways because they're already strapped for oil. So sending this fleet across the ocean and back was, was dipping into very valuable reserves. And so it needed to be done right. It needed to be done correctly and it needed to have no waste involved. And that's what they accomplished. That's what they accomplished. And they had, within this escort fleet, they had six aircraft carriers carrying 359 airplanes. Now that's fighters, dive bombers, and torpedo bombers. That is so many airplanes. So that's decent. That's a, that's a big strike force right there. And they managed to get across the entire Pacific Ocean without being detected. Now this was partially due to the intelligence that they had received. They knew when the fleets were going to be in dock. Sunday. Sunday it was, it was the day that the crew... Uh, usually got off. They had it to, off to go ashore for leave. They'd have it off for services. You know, it was the most reliable day that the um, the ships, you could depend on the ships to be in dock. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons that it was planned on. So they arrive. And we get to December 7th. Now, before the attack commences, there were a couple other warning signs. There were some midget submarines that were spotted off the coast of Hawaii. And one of them was sunk. One of them was captured, but they, there was still like, a wide, it's surprising to me that the wider military command didn't go, where did these, mili these midget submarines come from? How did they get all the way to this side of the Pacific Ocean without any sort of support network? They were just like, that's I, weird. I, I would have. Yeah, they were just like, oh, this is neat. We found some midget submarines. Um, so there were a few little warning signs, but by and large, when the attack commenced at 7.48 a.m., the island was caught largely unawares. Those spotters who did spot the, uh, the, uh, the aircraft coming in didn't know what they were looking at. They assumed that there was a, an Air Force element that was out on maneuvers that they just hadn't heard about. Again, the idea that an attack on Pearl Harbor was inconceivable for most of the military machine. And the aircraft launched in two waves. The battle itself lasted for 90 minutes. That's it. All this planning for 90 minutes, but whoa, what a 90 minutes. In those 90 minutes, 
It's crazy. Yeah, if you want to read off yeah, the numbers. Yeah, I was going to say, we have a list of casualties and here on both sides. Uh, and just all of this happening in that amount of time, I, I literally can't imagine it. The U.S. forces lost four battleships. They had four battleships damaged. One ex-battleship was sunk. One harbor tug was sunk. Three cruisers were damaged. Three destroyers were damaged. Three other ships were damaged. 188 aircraft destroyed. 159 aircraft damaged. 2,335 people were killed. And 1,143 were wounded. Along with 68 civilians... Uh, 35 civilians wounded and three civilian aircraft shot down. Japan, grand total, lost four midget submarines. One midget submarine was grounded. 29 aircraft was destroyed out of over 300. 74... 359. 359, yeah. thank you. Uh, 74 aircraft were damaged. 64 people were killed. And one sailor was captured. I mean, even just look the, at... From the midget submarine. Yeah. <laughs> so not even from the main attack. Uh, even just look at this from just pure people killed. 64 versus 2,335. It was an incredible disparity. Like, this was a very one... That's why we call it the attack at Pearl Harbor and not the battle at Pearl Harbor, because America was not able to respond. Uh, it, it, again, it caught us completely unawares for one reason or another. And, and there were several factors as well that kept us from responding in a more meaningful way during the actual attack. For instance, the aircraft <clears throat> at the airfields there had been pulled out onto the tarmacs because there was a fear of sabotage. And so if they were out away from buildings where they could be clearly seen and monitored by the, the, uh, the watch, uh, the watchman, then it, it was far, more, far less likely that they would be sabotaged. Now, this same maneuver made them way easier to hit by the dive bombers that were tasked with going to the airfields and destroying said aircraft. I'm just imagining being the poor sod that recommended that they're like, no, man, we totally have to get all of our aircrafts out there in the open where we can see them, where no one can sabotage them. Right. And then Pearl Harbor now, happens... <laughs> One of the unintended boons of that, however, is that like because the aircraft were destroyed early on and because uh, so few of them were able to get airborne because of the way they were positioned. Remember, they're all pulled out on the tarmac very close to each other. So a rapid flight action was very difficult to pull off. This actually meant that fewer American pilots died than would have otherwise probably happened. At this point in the war, the Japanese pilots were by far more experienced, and arguably their aircraft was were, were far better than the American ones at the time. This is before the P-52 uh, Mustang. I am not dissing the P-52 Mustang. That is a beautiful piece of machinery. You will never hear me diss it. But at this time, the Zero aircraft was, was better than what America had to offer. And so... Um, that alone, like we, we would have lost more pilots and aircraft are far less valuable than a pilot, than a trained, experienced pilot. You can get a new aircraft, but pilots take a lot of time and a lot of money to train up. So honestly, in terms of losses, the air, the, losing the aircraft, probably better than losing the pilots with them. And in terms of the ships, like you had said, all the battleships, uh, none of them escaped unharmed. Four of them were sunk, like destroyed, like sunk to the bottom of Pearl Harbor. And then four of them were damaged, like severely damaged. But because Pearl Harbor was so shallow, 
six of those eight battleships were able to be repaired in time to participate in the rest of the war. That's remarkably fast. That is... And that... And that would not have happened if the fleet would have been out at sea. Like if the if the battleships had managed to get prepared and go out to sortie, if they'd have been sunk away from the harbor, like that's a steep drop there. Like you've got shallow, 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 shallow ocean abyss. And trying to recover a battleship from that depth is not possible. Uh, well, it is now, but like it wasn't at the time. And even then, even now, the amount of effort that it would take, there'd be debate about how much it would be really worth your time. And again, the attack t- did take into account a lot of the facilities, but the majority of the repair facilities were left untouched. And so the repair on the, on the Navy could begin in earnest, quickly and efficiently. The other big thing that I hope you noticed when we were reading off the casualties was the absence of aircraft carriers on the list of American casualties. The aircraft carriers were untouched. Now, this proved to be a mistake because... The Japanese, for the whole rest of the, the for whole rest of the war, they hoarded battleships. They hoarded battleships, expecting that final decisive confrontation, battleship on battleship, the the epic uh, fight that we all envision in the movies. But the majority of the Pacific War was fought by aircraft, launched from aircraft carriers. Some of the most decisive campaigns of the Pacific War were fought almost exclusively by aircraft launched from aircraft carriers. And so that mistake, that mistake in focus really cost the Japanese long-term. And the other big miscalculation they made was assuming that the attack would take the willingness to fight out of the American people. Um, Certainly there was a period of shock. Certainly there was a period of mourning. Uh, At this time, America had embraced a very very strict form of isolationism. And because of the distance from other countries and from other continents, uh, with, with the exception of South America, on, on which we are connected by a th- very thin isthmus, um, we weren't really, we didn't feel vulnerable. We didn't feel like we could be invaded or could be attacked in that way. And so there was, much like after 9-11, there was a, there was a, a shock that settled over the country, but this was replaced by rage. This was replaced by, you know, you, you had the speech by, the very famous speech, the date which will live in infamy in which the American people were stirred into action and that industrial might was brought to bear solely for the purpose of war. We were turning out planes and tanks and ships at an unprecedented rate, at an insane rate if you look at the number. Like, it, it was just crazy, the, the amount of war machines that we were producing at this time, and it was because we were able to. And that was not something that the Japanese had necessarily planned on. Now, a few of them had warned about it. Yamamoto, for instance, who had spent a great deal of time in the U.S., was fully cap- like was fully aware of the U.S.'s capabilities. He was not a fan. He was the main planner of this attack, but he was not a fan of it. He was like, this is a mistake. We bring America into this war, and we are doomed because uh, you have not seen their factories. You have not seen their ability to pull steel out of the thin air and, and make stuff with it. You know, this is a, a big deal. But of course, um, you know, he wasn't necessarily considered. He was loyal. He served as emperor, but... Uh, he kind of knew that this wasn't going to go well. So in this, again, Pearl Harbor, only 90 minutes long, but th- that casualty rate, I think, speaks for itself. This was a very well-executed, very well-planned uh, attack that, again, as we've talked about, had, had a couple of years' worth of preparation that went into it. Uh, yeah, it's interesting, because I just... I have read all of this before, 
but it was nice to be able to read it again just because it's been several years. Uh, as we've talked about, sure. I tend to focus so much on ancient history that uh, it kind of reminds me why there's so many video games based off World War II. It's just a super fascinating time in military history. And part of the reason that we can look at it in such detail is because the detail was kept. You know, we have the plans, we have the maps, we have the radio correspondence enabled to, to get this kind of detail. Uh, you start going back further than the American Civil War, things get muddy. You know, you, you, you suddenly have a lot of different tellings and a lot of uh, lack of evidence to back things up. And I mean, by the time we get back to like Roman Carthage, we're basically retelling legends. Who knows what the actual tactical, um, what was happening? Like the numbers, for instance, we like every time we've covered one of those battles, we're like, ah, uh, the numbers could be between 50,000 and 120,000. We don't know. Whereas for, you know, World War II, we've got the numbers. We know what they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of nice to not have to rely on Herodotus. Sorry, I'm done. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. The modern, uh, scholastic, and, and academic community is definitely a blessing. So today, or tonight, depending on when you're listening to this, we've covered quite a few things. We talked about battlefield intelligence, and where you want to position your team on a field, moving that team on the field, and the way to examine that battlefield to make the most of your superiorities. Secondly, we talked about motives for engagement, and how one should not rush into such things and should learn to be patient, not to be overconfident, and learn to make decisions between temporizing and speedy action. You want to know if you have dependable allies on which you can rely, and always be aware of the morale factor. Always go after early target priority and make sure to select the right ones, but remember that superiority does not mean that one should enter a general engagement. And in these ways, we've studied Operation Z, the lead up to the Battle of Pearl Harbor, and seen a lot of these, uh, these principles in action. So if you haven't gotten a nearly enough Art of Wargaming, you can check us out on Instagram and Facebook. That's our, our handle, Art of Wargaming Podcast. I am, again, always trying to, to put more stuff on there. We're always looking for new player profiles to, to post up there to talk about our community. Uh, we, we really hope you'll join us there. You can also email us questions, comments, concerns, feedback, criticism, whatever the case may be, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. And if you're looking for other material to listen to, we have some lovely shows on our sister network. Yeah, you can check out other shows on the Earverm network. That is E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. Uh, you can find all of them and us at earverm.com. Or you can check out General Nerdery or Fried Squirms or other shows that we'll be launching within the next month or so. But for today, this has been Yaga Malark. And I'm Thumbs. Signing off.